Hooray for Hollywood! That's screwy ballyhooly Hollywood! That's right, Hollywood, California, home to the Hollywood sign, the Walk of Fame, and the world-famous Hollywood Bowl! Where you're gonna wanna smoke marijuana as much as you possibly could! Well, well you know, it's mostly legal now. Anyone could get a car, I have two, uh, one for each knee. The streets are a mess from all the homeless. Y you know, it's not their fault, really. You should blame the parents. Some of these guys are veterans. Hooray for Hollywood! Where you're terrific if you're even good Where any harlot could die a starlet Yeah, sure, the killer's still out there But we're waiting on the DNA technology to catch up to the case But he hasn't struck in years Where any young mechanic can be Hispanic Oh my, have a, come on, they could be Armenian too Or, or whatever they, Say, what are you trying to do, pal? I'm trying to sell property here in Hollywood Why are you doing this? Because I own property in Riverside Hooray for Riverside Not that screwy ballyhooly Hollywood where the grass is greener and things are cleaner and everything's just as it should. And uh, well, if you can't beat them, Riverside! 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 Paid for by the We Want Meth Association of Riverside. <laughs> Live from Los Angeles. It's Greg. Meekly. Uh. <laughs> no, it's the Greg show now. Welcome. You're a guest. It's Greg and the girl. <laughs> Greg and girl hair, whatever his name is. <laughs> a lot has changed since you last heard us. Sorry, the giggle fest has gone on a little bit too long, I think. Let's just dive right into it. Hello, I'm Daniel. I'm Greg. Nice to meet your acquaintance. That's the phrase, right? I know phrases. I'm a host nice. of a popular show. Nice to eat you. That's what I say. I get snarky. Topical. <laughs> Yeah, people are hungry. <laughs> well, here we are in May. This is the 29th episode. It's a May day. Yeah. <laughs> great. May day is precisely what you'll be yelling in a few minutes when you get sick of this episode. <laughs> no one's coming to help. Trust me. And that's the worst part when you just hear your friends getting eaten and you just see those dead lifeless eyes of me and Greg. Hi. <laughs> Who's next on the menu? This is another episode that we broke into six parts. Yeah. Uh, you took this three. This is one of those septology or sextology <laughs> episodes that you all love. Because it, it's sort of less talking. You think it's less talking, but it's really not. It's, it's about more, the same. It's more, but in different chunks. Yeah, different chunks, which we get requests, emails every day. Please, different chunks. Subject heading, different chunks. <laughs> I had a lot of homework, so we did a little episode today. Yeah, a little. A little episode. Yeah. It's only going to be, oh, longer than your average children's movie. <laughs> <laughs> you could watch babe twice in the time that we're gonna be talking here so settle in with the gallant pig if you will and i'm not just talking about greg boy is he a winker i ate everything and it was good and i won't stop until i'm done we decided hey it's finally you know maybe there's a tourist he's somewhere in the middle of arkansas right now and he's thinking boy oh Boy, would I like to see the pacific ocean someday but i'm just too scared to go there because not everyone's white 
So to appease all of the racist tourists that are coming to town, we made this little episode, which is sort of a uh, almost tour guide, not really, yeah. but it's sort of, we're going to be discussing the biggest landmarks in Los Angeles and their history. I believe when you pitched the episode to me, you said the obvious landmarks, mm-hmm. and that's really what they are, the most obvious ones that we yeah. can... We're not going to be delivering our regular insight that we <laughs> dish up on a I monthly didn't have to, basis. I didn't have to shake any cops down this time. <laughs> well, a few. I mean, I, just because I like to. It wasn't about the episode. It was just, you know, I want to ride downtown. I don't know how to get one. The original Uber. (laughs) I was part of the mod squad and they don't respect me. So we each picked three of the most obvious landmarks, as I put it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good introduction if you're coming to Los Angeles for the first time or if you know you've been here forever, but you feel like it's the first time. Say, I don't know anything about that Hollywood sign. I wish one of them would tell me about it. Yeah, I see it every day. I go up there. I worship it. Yeah. I leave a script that it's at one of the O's and I burn it and sacrifice to Steven Spielberg. And one day he's going to notice the small fires I've been leaving him. Someday he'll get wise. I've been the one leaving all those flaming duties on his porch. <laughs> They're scripts. They're his duty to read them. <laughs> we each did three. We're going to get into it. And Greg, take us away. Very few billboards are as revered as this next one. But because this town is built upon the idea that we can make anything famous, why not make nine letters the symbol for the glory of the Mui industry? <laughs> the Mui industry? The Mui industry. We're cows. <laughs> We're cows. Hello, Moo. <laughs> L.A. Mookley. L.A. Milkley. <laughs> I covered the Hollywood sign for this. Oh, boy. Situated on Mount Lee on the Santa Monica Mountains. Somewhat of a Is walk that what from... what it's called? What? Mount Lee? Yeah. It's named after Robert E. Lee, of course. It's LA's named- greatest hero, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. <laughs> it was actually named after Bruce Lee, <laughs> and nobody wants to give him credit for that. Also fought for the Confederacy. <laughs> one-man army. <laughs> the Hollywood sign is somewhat of a walk from the Griffith Observatory, where one of these podcasters took a round-trip, seven-hour hike from the merry-go-round in Griffith Park to the Hollywood uh, sign. Not suggested. <laughs> Hollywood was officially registered in 1887 by Harvey Wilcox. It was 160 acres that he envisioned to be the perfect site for a Christian community, which would be highly moral and vice-free. <laughs> I think it worked. As as he was a prohibitionist. Yeah, it, it remained that to this day. <laughs> Wilcox and his wife, Dieta, moved to Los Angeles from Topeka, Kansas. Oh, um, it's kind of like our Kansas. A little bit, a little bit off. They must have been letters. racist. They didn't like a lot of different people. But you know what? They did like different people. Wait, what did I just say? Dieta is the woman who supposedly gave the area the name Hollywood after a friend of hers mentioned a summer home she would visit, which was also called Hollywood, but that's unconfirmed, mm-hmm. as is most of the stories in this. <laughs> There's a lot of different stories about who was the father of Hollywood, how the name of Hollywood came up. Then came H.J. Whitley, the real estate magnet, who would later be known as the father of Hollywood. That's already two fathers of Uh-oh. Hollywood. Not in my Hollywood. Not in my <laughs> vice-free Hollywood. Are we going to have two dads? My God, what is this, West Hollywood? <laughs> I think you're taking the offensive thing a little too far. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm taking it far enough. <laughs> I'm going to say all the slurs right now. Has Trump won yet? I keep voting online. I keep voting for Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> Celebrity Apprentice. I hope he made it to the end. The winner of the Celebrity Apprentice becomes his running mate. <laughs> Whitley wanted to turn the 160 acres of potential Christian soil into a wealthy and popular residential area. Whitley was responsible for bringing electric, telephone, and gas lines to the area. Come 1910, the residents of this new suburb voted to consolidate with LA to get into the larger water supply since it was not in abundance at the time. They had not raped the Owens Valley yet. Hollywood hasn't changed a bit since he envisioned it. No, no, there's no, no water, no vices. Nope. They can't that. have vice without water. It's the source of all vice <laughs> and lice. Water, the essence of lice. <laughs> Oh, the Giggle Fest is back. Oh, did you miss it? I know some of you have. Shut up. Stop listening. 
Anyway, go on, Greg. 1910, they consolidate with the city of LA. 1911 is when the first movie studio opened up, and about 20 companies were producing films in that area. You mentioned in the downtown episode, there's another father of Hollywood, although this guy is more of the father of the image of Hollywood, C.E. Toberman. Yeah, he's coming up a lot in this Oh, is he? Okay, good. Oh, baby. Uh, There's an obvious Maury Povich joke in here about who the real father is. (laughs) Nevertheless, what is certain is that Whitley contracted a company called Crescent Sign Company to promote the residential area. He wished to sell on an area known as Whitley Heights in Hollywood, which is an area that housed Rudolph Valentino, Gloria Swanson, W.C. Fields, and Charlie Chaplin, among many others. This is the area between... Good God. Good God in one house. (laughs) Welcome to Celebrity Apprentice, (laughs) season one. What's fired mean? You mean pink slipped? So Whitley Heights is the area between Coanga Boulevard, Highland, and Franklin. It makes like a Bermuda Triangle shape. If you go up Coanga past the freeway overpass, that area that... Near the donut place? What donut? Kettle oh, donuts. sort of. It's farther. If like you make a ride on Coanga, you go up, I believe, around the area before you start riding parallel with the 101. That area when you're making that big turn. I think that's Whitley Heights. I don't know for sure, right. but I'm pretty sure. They said it's walking distance to the Hollywood Bowl. But everything in that area yeah, is. Everything is walking distance to the Hollywood Bowl if you're willing to die. How many of you are willing to die to get to the Hollywood Bowl? In cahoots with Whitley to sell property in the area was LA Times publisher Harry Chandler, who invested in the real estate development. The plan was to... Is is that related to Dorothy Chandler? I know he's not related to Raymond Chandler, which I looked up. Is he related to Chandler Bong from Friends? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. So Chandler and Whitley together were trying to promote the area Chandler had invested in the real estate development. The plan was to build a large sign with lights similar to Eat at Joe's. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would work better than your standard. Oh, how great would that be if that's <laughs> what it said <laughs> And that's what's been there for 100 years. Oh, I would have loved that. Eat at Joe's land. <laughs> this large sign which lights was going to work much better than any wooden billboard. Mm-hmm. It's unclear whether the company's owner, Thomas Fisk Goff, came up with the hillside design or his chief designer, Jerry Rowe, but either way, Chandler and Whitley agreed that a hillside advertisement would work best. The hillside in question was decided to be Mount Lee, which sits right above the area where they were trying to sell. Mm-hmm. If you're in that area, that's basically... You're see it. Yeah. If you're living there, you're going to see it. The Hollywood sign, which at the time had four additional letters, L-A-N-D, to spell it Hollywood Land, went up in 1923. The sign was pulled up the steep hillside by both tractors and mules. <laughs> mules driving tractors. <laughs> <laughs> the mules have moved up in the industry. Now they are walking red carpets and starring in movies. Ha-ha. Oh, boy. Oh, here oh, it is. Greg. Oh, No, please don't. <laughs> no, don't no, talk no. about Olivia Munn like that. <laughs> the letters are 50 feet tall and... Really? They're that big? Yeah, 50 feet tall. I mean, you could see them from everywhere. They That's must be. True. Yeah. yeah. There are around 30 feet wide comprised of three by nine wood panels painted white oh my god they're that's really big yeah they're big have you ever been up there before no they're big i'm scared i'm you scared know, of how big they are lighting the sign there's 4020 watt light bulbs lighting underneath it that would flash holly then wood then land, <laughs> then all together Hollywood land. Oh. Oh. Eat a Joe's. Hollywood land, eat a Joe's. <laughs> the sign cost $21,000 to make, which today would equal $265,000. It's not still lit up, right? At no, night? no, it's yeah. not. Yeah. I didn't think so. Well, you just ruined the second act of my play. <laughs> <laughs> the story in which the lights go out. <laughs> The day Hollywood went dark. It was only supposed to stay up for over a year, the sign, 18 months at the most. But this was at the dawn of Hollywood's golden age when thousands of people were flocking to Los Angeles mm-hmm. to be the next Vivian Vance. <laughs> the glamour and the allure of Hollywood. Everyone wanted a piece of William Frawley. <laughs> and it's up to you to guess what piece. <laughs> His belt? 
His money clip? His belt that rode pretty close to his neck. <laughs> I want his billfold. <laughs> so the glamour and the allure of Hollywood was this beacon, and it was calling everybody towards it. And part of the attractions of the allure of Tinseltown was this symbol on the hillside that could be seen from most parts of this hilly city. Hollywood land. You made it to movie Mecca. But for some people, the lights weren't bright enough, Daniel. The lights <laughs> oh, weren't no. bright enough. One night in 1932, a struggling actress named Lillian Millicent Entwistle, or Peg as she preferred, made her way up to the Hollywood land sign. Peg had been a New York stage actress who had made her way onto Broadway and she naturally wanted to put her talents up on the big screen. She came to Los Angeles and moved in with her uncle, himself an actor, on Beachwood Drive, which is like practically underneath the sign itself. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best roads, actually, if you want to see the sign. She landed some bit parts here and there, but finally got a good role in a film called 13 Women. I don't know which one she was. <laughs> she it was the 14. <laughs> it was a move in the right direction for her, but because the film was reviewed unfavorably, the release of it was delayed. And after a series of rejections, she hoped to make her way back to New York to the stage, but she couldn't fund the trip. She didn't seem to be here that long, maybe a year but it was long enough to feel the icy rejection of the movie industry so peg and whistle that night in 1932 climbed mount lee then she used a ladder meant for maintenance workers to climb the 50 foot letter h of hollywood la- land a big ladder it is a big ladder and then she threw herself off of it ending her life she first hit the rocky base of the area below the letters then tumbled another hundred feet or so until she body came to a stop to a ravine uh, a hiker the next day found her coat and her shoe and took it to the hollywood police department and then they went out and found the body the paper the next day had a phrase which is fitting not only for entwistle's body but for all the struggling actors in hollywood attractive but unidentified <laughs> <laughs> that sums us up <laughs> one of us are each attractive one of us is unidentified hi i'm question mark <laughs> i'm the mysterious <laughs> it's mysterians they also found a discarded suicide note that read I am afraid I am a coward I am sorry for everything if I had done this a long time ago it would have saved a lot of pain signed P.E. I have always hated (laughs) P.E. and this is another reason she was 24 when she killed herself and this this is a rumor I haven't confirmed either but I've read it on a couple places apparently the next day she got a letter offering her a part in a play from the Beverly Hills Playhouse the role was for a character that was driven to suicide and just like the film Boogie Nights one nasty death sends everything into decay mode (laughs) the 30s was a hard time for everyone as it was again the decade of the great depression mm-hmm. and not as many people were seeking expensive homes in the hollywood land hills maintenance of the sign ends in 1939 as the sign itself begins to largely get ignored for some time the sign read hollywood land because the h had fallen over and no one bothered to rebuild or put it back up it fell on peg Entwistle's <laughs> uncle's house it wedged perfectly in the h it just sat <laughs> it was, there that's where that buster keaton scene came from <laughs> I learned a weird fact that kind of creeped me out. There used to be a caretaker who lived in a shack behind the letter L. <laughs> which one? I don't know which one, but it doesn't matter. They're right I next to each other. <laughs> it, was a, it was a big, it was a it was a big shack. Yeah. <laughs> His name was Albert Koth. I don't know. I read It has nothing to do with the rest of it. It's just creepy. That is weird. Uh, it wouldn't be a bad job, though. No, I don't think so. Isn't that also where Truman comes out in the Truman Show and he's like on the Hollywood sign? It wasn't like his... Isn't that what happens at the end of the movie? He leaves his fake world and he's like standing on top of the Hollywood sign. I don't think so. Sure. Let's watch the Truman Show right now. (laughs) Let's recreate the Truman Show right now. (laughs) Okay, so now it's the mid-40s. It's post-war. The country's thriving. Hollywood community is at its aesthetic peak. But that damn sign is rotting. (laughs) And the developers who own the sign and the 450 acres it sits on, they want it gone. But instead of doing the work themselves, they turn it over to the city of Los Angeles. The city's Recreation and Parks Commission wanted to get rid of it, but the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce stepped in and saved it. As part of the renovations, they removed L-A-N-D, so now it really simply read Hollywood. Why? Because the town, the area wasn't called Hollywood land. It was never. Why are they? I think it was just fun. 20s. 20s whimsy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 20s whimsy. Welcome His name's to, not Disneyland. Welcome to Disney. I'm Walt Disneyland. 
they would also around this time remove the lights from under the sign because they didn't want to pay that bill either. Mm. The Chamber of Commerce gave the sign a beautiful makeover, reinforcing the structure and repainting the letters. From this point on, it's mostly just maintenance. For the next 30 years, just keep making sure that sign doesn't look like crap. The next major repair needed comes in September of 1973 and would be sponsored by Sunset Boulevard star Gloria Swanson, Ooh. who used to live under there. The night of the renovations Everyone were- live under the sign? Not directly under the sign, but- well, What letter was she behind? <laughs> she lived in the shack behind the O. Everyone could see it. The night of the renovations were to premiere to the public. They had these huge searchlights and the lights they paid that night were beaming under the letters and flipping the switch on all of that was Swanson and she flipped the switch but the fog bank was too dense for anyone to see so they had to do it another night. Uh. <laughs> 1973 is the same year that the Hollywood sign, now 50 years old, is declared a historical landmark by the Los Angeles Cultural Heritage Board. So it's three years later, 1976. And boys in 1976 Los Angeles. Recently, 1976, the marijuana law in the state oh, changed. No. Under a new law, possession of less than one ounce of marijuana is no longer a felony but a misdemeanor resulting in a maximum fine of $100 and a court appearance. To celebrate this, a prankster from CSUN named Danny Finegood and his pals climbed up to the Hollywood sign no, and using about $50 and him and his pals, they had about $50 worth of black and white fabric. Oh, they no. changed it no, they changed it to no. Hollyweed. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. They did. There are pictures. Oh, Hollyweed. No. That seems like something that could happen now. Yeah. That's sad. It's just as funny now as it was then. Even his name, Fine Good. It's he's like a Cheech and Chong character. Fine Good. Fine Good. Great. <laughs> Danny. Fine Good. Great. Land. <laughs> fine Good did this as part of a school project for which he received an A. What? What yeah. was the project? I have no idea. I was trying to figure that out. Uh, art uh, project. Mischievousness 101. <laughs> this was the first of many vandalisms upon the letters, of which Fine Good was responsible for a few more. He changed it to Hollywood on Easter. Once it read Hollywood. How did it, he get rid of the L? This is like uh, David Copperfield. He covers it up with like a black more or... More fabric? Yeah, more fabric. He fabric. Where he to see, son. It's a see, school of fabric. The, sc- yeah. the fabric academy. Yeah, the fine arts of fabric. The fine <laughs> Fabric Fine Arts. How weird to be, to repeatedly vandalize the Hollywood side. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Another time he changed it to Hollywood in protest of Oliver North's Iran-Contra testimony and once it read Oil War in protest of the Persian Gulf War. But I don't think that last one was successful. <laughs> I think he tried and then by that time it was probably when they were beefing up security. So like, fine, good, great, get out of here. You again. So it's 1978, just five years after Swanson's restoration, termites had begun to feast on the wood and I'm talking about the last four letters of the sign. Although, yes, those two. And especially fo- those. Especially. <laughs> one of the three O's deteriorated and fell down and slid down Matt Lee. Later that same year, arsonists... All the way to Long Beach. (laughs) We gotta ride that O, which in the porn industry means something else. Uh, Save it for West Hollywood. (laughs) Later that same year, arsonists, which are the termites of humans, (laughs) set the bottom of one of the two owls ablaze. I hope that guy didn't live there anymore. The plan was then set to completely rebuild the sign, all of it, chucking the original Hollywood sign and rebirthing a new one. The cost of this... That must have hoit. The cost of this would... Of the rebirthing, if you will, was gonna be $250,000, which was 10 times the cost of the original... That's a lot of money. And being the 70s, of course, Hugh Hefner of Playboy magazine stepped up to help raise the funds to save the sign. He managed to get a collection of community members and celebrities to help finance the repairs. Each sponsor get this would get a letter, and the letter would cost each person $27,500 apiece, which is the worst game of Wheel of Fortune ever. Here comes the breakdown of sponsors. Oh, boy. Covering the H would be the publisher of the Hollywood independent newspaper, Terrence Donnelly. Covering the first O, it was paid for by Italian movie producer Giovanni Massa. The first L was covered by Les Cali founder of the Cali Automotive Blue Book 
Volcano of the Blue Books. Yeah. The other owl is sponsored by Gene Autry, actor and singer. Oh, Gene Autry, he's coming up soon. Oh, is he? Okay, cool. Yeah. Tie him together. Ride him, cowboy. Tie him all together. <laughs> y would be paid for by Hugh Hefner himself. W was paid for by singer Andy Williams. Andy Williams. <laughs> the second O was sponsored by Warner Brothers Records. The third O was paid for by rock singer Alice Cooper, but dedicated to comedian Groucho Marx. What? Yeah. None of that makes sense. Yeah, that sentence altogether is a strange thing. I'll repeat it. The third <laughs> O was paid for by rock singer Alice Cooper, who dedicated it to Groucho Marx. He covered it in a mascara, <laughs> and it also had a mustache and a cigar coming out of it. <laughs> and the letter D was brought to you by Dennis Ledecky, a businessman who donated in the name of Matthew Williams. I don't know who either of those people are, but mm. good for them. Thank you for your donation. We appreciate it as a city. So between August to November, three months, LA was without a Hollywood sign. We didn't know where we were or how to get anywhere. We were lost. <laughs> I wasn't born, but I imagine yeah, it was I difficult. Burbank? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the North Star? A major part of the renovations was using steel footings for the letters instead of what was holding up sign before telephone poles 194 pounds of concrete are used to hold the sign in place the letters are now made of corrugated baked enamel and they receive a fresh coat of paint periodically from what i read the last time was in 2012 but i don't know how old that article was <laughs> they're officially repainted every once in a while <laughs> <laughs> whenever we feel like it uh fine good <laughs> Whatever, fine. <okay. laughs> so it's November 1976, the 75th anniversary of the original sign going up. The brand new sign was unveiled for the public. It was televised for all those around the world to see. The new sign is four stories high, 450 feet long, and weighing 480,000 pounds. <laughs> I could bench it. <laughs> I don't even need a spotter. Since then, it's mostly been about protecting the sign. In 1992, a nonprofit organization started to physically maintain and secure the sign. They call themselves the Hollywood Sign Trust. Together with the city, they are entrusted to look after the well-being of the sign. In 1999 and again in 2009, Panasonic Security installed not only cameras, but motion detection security, so no one is getting close to it. Although some people have. I see pictures. I have no idea how they well, do it. Well, there's also a live cam yeah. that you can watch. Yeah. But they must not be watching it. No. <laughs> yeah, the, the cam is 24 hours a day watching the sign. Not only security is watching out for people, but the reported ghost of Peg Entwistle, which I, is a thing I read, that she haunts the sign. Hmm. In 2010, the greatest defender of the sign, Hugh Hefner, once again led the charge, <laughs> charge as in let's charge my rich friends, to purchase the 130 acres behind the Hollywood sign and gift it to the city. The area around the sign was always problematic. At some point, the area west of the sign was owned by Howard Hughes, who planned on building a home there with Ginger Rogers, but they broke up, so no home. It was until until 2002 when the Hughes estate sold it to a real estate firm that wanted to put luxury homes there behind the sign or beside the sign I don't know so the Hollywood Sign Trust put together the Save the Peak campaign you may remember that those were the words that were briefly covering the Hollywood letters it looked like a kidnap thing <laughs> you remember that? no it said Save the Peak instead of Hollywood it was like I, I feel like it was two weeks but it could have been longer I don't remember that at all well I don't know if you've ever lived in the city then <laughs> several movie studios actors and foundations such as the Tiffany & Co Foundation and community leaders oh, community Tiffany & Co Tiff and they, can you imagine all the, I don't know. I don't know what they sell. Purses, rings, I don't know. Ugh, Community leaders Urgent. like Eileen Getty, who's the granddaughter of J. Paul Getty here. The granddaughter? Granddaughter. She's a granddaughter. She's the father. The granddaughter of J. Paul Getty. She contributed heavily. Hugh Hefner personally donated $900,000 to the Save the Peak campaign. Wait, where does he get this? Uh, I guess I know where he gets the yeah. money, but why does he care so much about this sign? I don't, I, that's something. Should I get him off? Is that what this is about? 
Is this some sort of a weird sex thing? Because if it is, I want in. <laughs> I just needed to explain to me like a child. <laughs> I'll be in West Hollywood. <laughs> so he donated $900,000 of the total, which had to be $12.5 million, which oh was required God. to save the area to buy off from the developers. This price is going up and up. But they were able to accomplish that price, and now that whole area is protected parkland. The sign is not safe, though, no. from fictional disasters. <laughs> In 1974's earthquake, the sign's letters fall off and slide down Mount Lee one by one. In 1978's Superman, the letters bend during a quake. In the movie 1941, which was done in 1979, I think John Belushi shoots them up with his airplane. Of course he does. He shot something else up later. (laughs) Come on, he probably snorted it. (laughs) And in The Rocketeer, a Nazi with a rocket pack crashes into it. Of course. Also, I think The Day After Tomorrow kills everything in LA. A a tornado rips it apart, which could have happened. A tornado. A tornado. We live in Tornado Alley. So if you're curious the easiest place to see the sign is on Canyon Lake Drive, particularly 3000 Canyon Lake Drive in Hollywood. The easiest way to get there is to take the 101, exit Barham Boulevard, drive a couple blocks, then turn right onto like Hollywood Drive. It gets a little confusing there. There's a lot of small roads, but just keep driving up. The owners might yell at you for being in their driveway. Don't worry. Just drive <laughs> straight through the garage. What you're looking for is the Reservoir Tahoe Drive. There's a dog park there. It's a really nice park and you're like almost directly under the sign. You're yeah. as close to being on flat land to the sign as you can be. If you want to hike there, you mm-hmm. want to look for the Mount Hollywood Trail. You can get good views of it from, I mean, not the best, but from the Griffith Observatory. Yeah, you, you can park there and you can take that. Really, two uh, that's, birds that's, with one H. That's <laughs> the Mount Hollywood Trail. It starts there at the parking uh, lot and then you can just walk there. You get pretty close to it, but not close enough. Yeah. To get behind letters, you want to try to find Sunset Ranch Hollywood, which is like a horse stable. I've done there. that. I've ridden those horses. Have you really? Good golly. <laughs> yeah, I have. I did a horse trail a long time ago and I remember it was like right next to the sign. I guess I have seen it. I'm not an idiot. And yeah, we rode a horse like all the way up the mountain and we ended up at a Mexican restaurant on the other side and we ate there and then I rode my horse back. It was wonderful. Are you sure this isn't a dream? Oh, yeah. It was. This is the searcher. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Every night I dream I'm in the searchers. <laughs> I just want to find that girl. When you're at Sunset Ranch Hollywood and you're having Dan- the Daniel experience as they, as they try to sell the tourists now, look for signs that read the Hollywood Trail that starts on Beachwood Drive, which is off of Franklin as well. And that'll, we'll put links on the Tumblr yeah. for trails and stuff. So that's the Hollywood sign. All right. Well, fine. Good. Great. Uh, fine. Good. Great. <laughs> I'm going to do the next part, something you've all been familiar with for your whole lives. The thing that you all moved to Hollywood for, the Walk of Fame. Oh, name all the names on that. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Daffy Duck. <laughs> you know that place? you like to walk quickly over to avoid the smells on the way from your car to Ashton Kutcher's sushi restaurant? <laughs> yes. The Hollywood Walk of Fame. Glitz. Glamour. Gingivitis. Is As that the name of one of the dancers that has a star on the Walk of Fame? <laughs> well, all three of them have it. <laughs> as we've talked about before, and as you can still see today, Hollywood ain't what it used to be. <laughs> ain't what it used to be. Ain't what it used to be. Ain't what it used to be. I'm gonna lay down my <laughs> Riverside. Uh, After its heyday in the 20s and 30s, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked about it already a little bit. The area started to decline as the population moved westward, northward, etc., etc. You know the drill. (laughs) As a result, Hollywood's main thoroughfare, Hollywood Boulevard, showed the decay most visibly by the 1950s. Something had to be done to revitalize the historic core, as it's called. And Scientology was just what this city (laughs) (laughs) needed. Let's put away what we wrote. Let's talk about Scientology. (laughs) Let's talk about past lives for a minute. (laughs) Tell me everything about you that makes you that that makes me incriminate that'll help me incriminate incriminate you 
Wow, keep talking. Please keep talking. Ah. Dianetics. So the historic core, meaning Hollywood Boulevard, basically, and they wanted to bring back some of the glamour of the old days. And what's more glamorous than stars on the floor? (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood was, of course, already synonymous with show business, Mm -hmm. so they wanted to double down on that natural tourist draw and do something to emphasize the showbiz appeal of the street. In 1953, E.M. Stewart, the president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, first proposed the idea to turn the street into a walk of fame, but what exactly that entailed was not clear yet. <laughs> so they got a man named Oliver Weissmuller to come up with, des- he wanted swastikas everywhere. <laughs> he wanted a pure land. <laughs> it's Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> this strange man. So they got him, he came up with designs for it, and the idea of having stars seemed to come up pretty quickly, which was an idea many think came from the stars that H.J. Whitley would paint on the ceiling of the Hollywood Hotel dining room to honor the celebrities that would eat there. Okay, But one of the original ideas was to have caricatures of each celebrity on their star, an idea that promised to be both complicated and humiliating. <laughs> How great would that be? Oh, yeah. To point out someone's large chin and then correspond their name to it. <laughs> the color scheme of the walk was also going to be blue and brown, but that idea was nixed by C.E. Toberman, oh. who was the grand engineer of Hollywood, because it would have clashed with some buildings that he was putting up along the street. It wouldn't look good. He knew his colors. The colors, Duke the colors. (laughs) After a few years of planning, they settled more or less on what we have there now, and a formal plan was submitted to the LA City Council in January 1956. It was to cost $1.25 million, and would also come with better sidewalks, lights along the street, and trees, which was to be paid for by the Hollywood Property Owners Association and the Hollywood Improvement Association. I'm sure they're happy to do it. What's $1.25 million between business owners? (laughs) So as a precursor in the meantime, they nailed down some silver-plated stars into the pavement of Hollywood Boulevard. So many tires were lost. (laughs) So the plan was to put down large stars in the sidewalk of Hollywood Boulevard to honor people from show business past and present. Okay, That's the idea. The stars would come in four categories. Chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Chocolate. Vanilla. Ice cream. Spaghetti. (laughs) My favorite ice cream flavor. Spaghetti. (laughs) So it was motion pictures, television, radio, and recording. The stars would contain the person's name and a little emblem depending on what category they were Uh in. Either a film camera, radio microphone, a record, or a TV receiver. Stars are made of pink terrazzo with brass lettering inside it ah, and black terrazzo around <laughs> the star. To select who would be honored, they formed a committee of some of the biggest people in show business at the time to decide who was worthy. This group included Samuel Goldwyn, Cecil okay. B. DeMille, Walt Disneyland, <laughs> Hal Roach, Max Sennett, and Jesse Lasky, and they looked back as far as 1912 to pick out the initial group of 500. And to drum up excitement and as a sort of soft opening of the walk, they temporarily unveiled the first eight stars on August 15th, 1958 at the Hollywood and Highland intersection. Battle of the Network Stars, they called it, but then they later changed it. Battle of the Sidewalks. <laughs> These eight names were drawn randomly from a hat, which is how the Oscars are decided also. <laughs> from the initial 500 group, these were the people. Olive Borden, nope. Ronald Coleman, nope. Luis Fazenda, okay. Preston Foster, good name, but I don't know who that is. Burt Lancaster, Ooh, handsome. Edward Sedgwick, Edie Sedgwick, did you mean? Yeah, that's yeah. right. But the closer. <laughs> Ernest Torrance and Joanne Woodward. Okay. The first star to be revealed was of Preston Foster, but Joanne Woodward is the one credited often with being the first because she was the first to pose for photos with her stars. Ladies so, first. Ladies and Preston Foster first. <laughs> so the demo was a hit, but not everyone... I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That that just that self satisfaction. All right. Still got it. 
Let's see if any of you pick up on this. The demo is a hit, but not everyone was shaping the sidewalk struck. I could see why you needed to reread that. <laughs> I could see why I needed to rewrite that. <laughs> so the construction of the walk had to be shut down shortly after this, the, the soft opening, yeah. because of a lawsuit filed by the local business owners who were upset about the new taxes that they had to pay for these stars. Then a second lawsuit came in filed by Charles Chaplin Jr., oh, who demanded $400,000 for his dad being left out of the initial 500 group. A deci- think you are Mary Pickford's daughter? A decision the committee had made because of Chaplin's violation of the Mann Act in the 40s and even worse, his left-leaning politics. Oh my God, what are they gonna do? Let him back in the country? (laughs) Yeah, come on. He's got a cane. He's an old man. (laughs) Both suits lost, but Chaplin was eventually given a star in 1972. I like that you could throw a tantrum and get a star. Uh, Eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Not right away. Those business owners never got their taxes back though, so (sighs) they're they're still. So construction moved forward and the official groundbreaking happened February 8th, 1960, but it wasn't until November 20th 1960 that the Hollywood Walk of Fame was formally dedicated just in time for the Hollywood Christmas Parade at the end of November. Where people had to stand and look at the sidewalk instead of what's happening on the parade. (laughs) It was made in the 60s? It wasn't earlier than that? No. Wow. Yeah, it's really it's really contrived and it's really recent. We're not putting it down. <laughs> the first official star was dedicated to none other than, of course, you guessed it, Stanley Kramer. <laughs> but the initial construction didn't end there. It wasn't until spring of 1961 that the walk was deemed completed. And by this time, it had 1,558 stars. And then the stars went to bed for several years <laughs> while the specifics of how the Walk of Fame should operate were decided. First, it was decided that the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce would be in charge of it, and they still are to this day. Until now. We usurped them. <laughs> <laughs> then the process for who would be admitted to the walk needed to be nailed down, much like the stars in the pavement. The way it works is that to first be considered, you must be nominated. Okay. So you can be nominated by anybody. It could be the person's agent, their manager, their fan club, or just one lunatic, or their husband or wife, which you gotta be a lunatic, <laughs> or their mom or dad, no lunatics, or even the celebrities themselves. They, you can nominate yourself. I have tried in all possible Possibilities. It hasn't worked for me. They will not open the letters even. <laughs> well, there's so much anthrax. In <laughs> I mean, it's coded. You could see it. It's like glazed. But you do have to have been working in whatever field you're being nominated in for at least five years. So if nominated, the celebrity also has to agree to be considered. This is why a lot of people get upset. Certain people don't have stars on the Walk of Fame. Like everyone's upset right now. Prince is dead. Where's? Why doesn't he have a Walk of Fame? He didn't want one. Uh, like he, they offered it to him several times. He didn't care. You want to go against his wishes? Yeah. Just like yeah. A Take pictures of it. <laughs> Another reason that a lot of people don't do it is that it's not free to get a star. If you're selected, the current fee is $30,000 to pay for the creation and upkeep of your star. Of your own star? Of your own star. Well, this it's usually paid for by the like the studio that okay. the celebrity's working for or the fan club, but still. For people... It's not fun. No, not really. But it is lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> you're buying billboard space. Yeah. This is this whole industry, what? top to bottom. I thought this whole thing was about art and integrity. <laughs> so for people who are dead, which is applies to Prince again, they have to have been dead for at least five years just to make sure that they aren't vampires. <laughs> Nosferatu's never <laughs> getting no. his star. And I have tried. <laughs> Me and the whole fan club. I mean, Thrall. I mean, fan club. There's only one posthumous star allowed per category each year. The other catch is that if you are alive, you must attend the unveiling ceremony. If you're dead, you at least have to make an effort. 
hold on to a little bit of my ashes in case they want to put my star <laughs> he's here. on Franklin. He's here. So the only one who has not shown up to their ceremony was Barbara Streisand in 1976. She's still missing. <laughs> was it a protest or what? I, I don't know. I think she's. I don't know. Like, I, I'm busy. What a funny girl. Ha ha ha. See what I did there? I don't even know if she was that. It wasn't her. Oh, Babs. All nominations must be submitted by May 31st, and then a secret committee of six members from all parts in, of showbiz. In red robes. <laughs> they convene in June, and they meet in the O of the Hollywood sign, <laughs> and go through the some 200 yearly nominations, and judge them based on their longevity and contributions to show business, and come out with somewhere between 20 to 30 names, depending on the year. If selected, the celebrity has five years to schedule their ceremony, which they usually plan to coincide with some project they have coming out to like get Shrek, more publicity. Yeah. Like Shrek 2, yeah. Exactly like Shrek 2. <laughs> the one where he has the babies. They're so cute. From 1980 until his death in 2008, the secret committee and the ceremonies were presided over by the mayor, in heavy quotes of Hollywood, Johnny Grant, who was instrumental in keeping this whole rite of passage going over the years. Mm -hmm. The secret committee went public in 1999 due to calls for transparency following accusations of bribery. Can I bribe you so I can pay for my own star and also schedule it myself? Can I bribe you to do that? Because it sounds like we're. We only have five years. (laughs) So with all of that figured out, the first of the next batch of stars was added December 11th, 1968, for the Honorable Richard Zanuck, and the stars have never stopped being born. It's a nebula out there. More and more stars came every year, and their intention to make it a tourist landmark succeeded very, very successfully. In 1978, it became a Los Angeles historic cultural monument. That same year, the Walk of Fame star itself was trademarked by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, so you have to pay if you want to sell a star to someone, a little baby star. Also in 1978 was the first star given to a fictional celebrity, a Mr. Michael Mouse. Oh, Mikey made it. Steamboat Willie? He will never get a star. (laughs) He knows what he did. He violated the man act. You know where he was taking that steamboat? You know what was on that steamboat? Dirty Mm. mouse. There are now 15 fictional stars total. Shrek is one of them. In 1984, they added a new star category, live performance represented by comedy tragedy masks, which mostly covered theater, but also was interpreted to eventually include giving a star to Muhammad Ali for his star-making performance in boxing. <laughs> His star is the only one not in the ground. It's on a wall of the Dolby Theater because he didn't want to be stepped on by, quote, people who have no respect for me. Okay. You know, anybody else, and I'd be like, well, that's stupid, but that sounds yeah. exactly like Muhammad Ali. Step like a butterfly. The <laughs> only person with a star in all five categories, take one guess. Shrek. Tony Randall. <laughs> Tony Randall. I don't know. <laughs> Gene Autry. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Good for him. And you know what? Good for everybody. Good for America. Bob Hope and Tony Martin have four. 33 people have three. And 163 people have two of them. The Barrymores have the most stars of a family with six of them. Right. The most common type of star is still for film, though. There are also 15 special stars that have been given out to things that defy categories like the LA Times or Variety or the Victoria's Secret Angels or... Tom Bradley. (laughs) A category unto himself. Tom Bradley. The special stars have different symbols, like a badge for the LAPD or a dead innocent man. A Dodgers logo for the Dodgers. There are four stars, here's a fun thing, on each corner of Hollywood and Vine for the Apollo 11 moon landing crew, only these stars aren't stars. They're circles for the moon. 
because they went to the moon. I can think of one of the hosts of this show who loves that. (laughs) My favorite star is a circle. Have you ever noticed that before? Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) (laughs) They also have a television emblem on them since the landing was televised. Yeah, Eh. They're TV stars now. The location of each person's star is usually selected to try to fit in with who that person is. As a result, the most coveted spots are the ones closest to the Chinese theater. In the 90s, they added a second row of stars in the most popular areas to make room for the constantly growing number of stars that were coming in. They built a lot of foot traffic on the Caillou. <laughs> There's a real pile-up around uh, you know, Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. <laughs> That's our idea of the two biggest celebrities. Yours is Rodney Dangerfield and mine is Rita Hayworth. It's 2016. They would have made a horrible couple, but you know, she went with Orson Welles. It's not that far off. No. Neither of them got much respect. <laughs> so I hear. On February 1st, 1994, they extended the reach of the walk a block west from Sycamore to La Brea and commemorated this with a gazebo sculpture thing made by Dorothy Dandridge. Okay. But no, it's not made by Dorothy <laughs> Dandridge. Bah, 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 just sitting there with a hammer. I will be a part of this. I said three sixteenths. <laughs> It was made by Catherine Hardwick called the Hollywood La Brea Gateway. Okay. It is 30 feet tall and has sculptures of Dorothy Dandridge, Anna Mae Wong, Mae oh. West, and Dolores Del Rio supporting a gazebo on their heads. These four women were chosen for the adversity they had to face in Hollywood and for their efforts to fight for equal chances and their mutual love of gazebo head balancing. They were so good at it. Mae <laughs> West had a big head, so I'm... Uh... <laughs> Why don't you come up and see me sometime? There's a gazebo up there. <laughs> this created the new official entrance to the walk and because what would Hollywood be without congratulating itself features a star for the walk of fame itself that has the emblem of one of the five categories on each of its points but the problem with having stars on the ground that people walk on is that people walk on them so they get worn out and they become tripping hazards there's a lot of tripping hazards on Hollywood Boulevard if you know what I mean you know where to look you know where to look you gotta find the right drug killer drugs Area. If you want to get high, <laughs> would you pass the duchy on the left or the right? That's the big question to know if you're a cop. The worst area is in front of the Red Line and the Chinese Theater. In 1999, they replaced 1,500 damaged stars, but again in 2008, 25% of the stars were deemed in need of replacing at the cost of $4.1 million, at which point the Friends of the Walk of Fame program was created to raise these funds, which are now being managed by the Hollywood Historic Trust. For the 50th anniversary in 2010, Bob Barker buried a time capsule at the original Hollywood and Highland spot to be dug up in 2060 with a note in it that said, have your pets spayed and neutered. Well, there won't be any pets at that time. In 2060. I was so happy that you said time capsule after the words Bob Barker buried. Bob Barker buried <laughs> in a time capsule. <laughs> to answer your question, yes, sometimes there are spelling errors. A Swedish director named Moritz Stiller for 28 years was represented as Maurice Diller. <laughs> and yes, four stars have been stolen over the years. Gregory Peck, Jimmy Stewart, Kirk Douglas, and Gene Autry. Weird ones to be stolen, but okay. Lucy? She's at it again. <laughs> there are currently 2,597 occupied stars on the walk and another some 500 blank ones with our names on them. <laughs> the whole thing stretches 15 blocks on Hollywood from Gower to La Brea and another three on Vine from Yucca to Sunset. The walk is visited by some 10 million people every year and the unveiling ceremonies are free and open to the public. Hollywoodchamber.net lists all the stars. LA Times has a virtual tour 
for if you don't want to go down there. There's also a Walk of Fame app that helps you find all the stars okay. and give you facts on the celebrity that you're looking at. Who was Dorothy Dandridge? <laughs> you can also donate $25 on the Friends of the Walk of Fame website and get a Friends of the Walk of Fame pin, which is kind of cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, a little overpriced. 29 people are getting stars in 2016, such as Steve Carell, okay. Bradley Cooper, okay. Quentin Tarantino, all right. Michael Keaton, Okay. David Duchovny. All right. Rob Lowe. Okay. Tracy Morgan. All right. LL Cool J. Okay. Adam Levine. Yeah. Cindy Lauper. Yes. Itzhak Perlman. I don't know who that is. Racist. Mama Cass Elliot. Okay. Yeah. And Kevin Hart. Okay. He works hard. You can... He he works hard. He plays. (laughs) You can guess for yourselves which ones you'll see us at. And that is the Walk of Fame. Did you, were you the one that told me that you used to think that people were buried there? I hope I didn't used to think <laughs> that, because that would be very embarrassing to put on this podcast. It is very hard to walk there and not look at the ground and try to read names. And it, part of the joy of doing that is that you're hearing other people read names as you're also reading yeah. names. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Jackie Chan. <laughs> Shrek too. So what do you have for us, Greg? Now, I know that you've gotten off the freeway on Vine before and you're like, what's this big building? Let me tell you what it is. Shell Station now. Uh, <laughs> Capitol Records, oh, 1750 boy. Vine Street, Los Angeles, California, 90028. The first Capitol Records office was actually down the street on Vine, 1507, which is closer to Sunset near the Palladium and the bank where the Yankee Bandit was finally caught. The lowercase records building as it was. <laughs> <laughs> the office was on the second floor above a record store called Music City or Wallach's Music City after the owner and studio president of Capitol, Glenn Wallach. Now, the store was run from 1940 to 1978 and was separate from his record company, which opened two years later and would be one of the most loved record stores in Southern California. It was one of the first known music stores to seal record albums in cellophane and put them on display so people could like sift through them and look. Interesting. Yeah. Keep that in mind because I do want to do a record store okay. episode one day. <laughs> this was a big one. This was also one of the first places from what I understand, one of the first places that had private listening booths so you can listen to Ooh, records. Baby. It eventually became more than a store because many bands visiting Sunset for the first time would have to stop there and pay tribute. The Rolling Stones did that. Yeah. The Birds, the Mamas and the Papa's all stopped at Wallach's. Mama Cass. Mama Cass would like, I'm going to have a star on this street one day. Like, hey, shut up. <laughs> Not until 2016 <laughs> when you're dead. Frank Zappa worked there for a period. Huh. It became like a hangout spot, similar to like whatever Amoeba is now, which is mm. really close to that location. So in 1942, owner Glenn Wallach's had started Capitol Records along with songwriter Johnny Mercer, who came from Tin Pan Alley, and an ex-Paramount movie producer named Buddy Da Silva. The first record they released was in June of 1942. It was Paul Whiteman's New Yorker Hotel Orchestra performing The General Jumped at Dawn and the B-side, I found a new baby. Uh, they didn't sell well. Uh, but because there, there was a war going on and there was a shortage on... What, sh- wait, what war? Oh, God. I didn't do research on that. 1942 and there was a war. I'm going to say... It was the Clone Wars. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. You're right. There was a shorter on Shalik, which was used to make records. Capital understood this, but Wallach's knew where to get it slightly cheaper so they could cut records regardless. And because it was a war, any record companies that were still putting out music at the time were going to get noticed. The big three record companies at the time were Decca, Columbia, and RC Victor, all of which were in Manhattan. So this new scrappy upstart label had a chance of making waves on the West Coast. And it worked. It became very popular for releasing incredibly well-received jazz and pop albums. Judy Garland, Nancy Wilson, Dinah Shore, the Kingston Trio, June Christie, the four freshmen were all signed, and then they had their big three hitters. Frank Sinatra, Peggy Lee, and Nat King Cole, local <laughs> hero. He wasn't born here, but he lived here. In the 50s, the company was doing pretty well. Between 54 and 58, the sales of albums tripled. But the 50s saw a new musical trend becoming dominant. Rock and roll? No. Yeah. 
Oh, no. Shaking. Maybe in West Hollywood. They were, they were gyrating, shaking pelvises at everywhere for anybody to see. <laughs> on, on TV, you are something of a hound dog, sir. <laughs> Capital was not on board with this new sound, but they preferred the stylized forms that they were releasing. They were very careful when they signed Gene Vincent, who already had a hate with Bebop Blue. She's my little baby. Thank you. And Johnny Otis's orchestra. But in 1955, the British record label EMI bought Capitol Records for yeah. $8.5 million, acquiring 96% of Capitol's stock. Right away, they wanted to start with creating a new record studio that would equal Abbey Road in London. They kept Wallachs as a president, but overall, the management of Capitol wouldn't be changed, they said. However, right around the corner was the British invasion and his oh, no. control. That's the war you're that's, talking that's about. That's the war on, with the Brits again. Yeah. Here they come. Fuck down the streets. <laughs> Anyways, EMI pays for capital and now it's time to move offices and create a sufficient recording studio and office space that's what that movie's about yeah wallach's commissioned architect welton beckett to design a seventy-eight thousand square foot headquarters building in hollywood at the time it was done it was reported to measure out to ninety-three thousand square feet i read that in an article i mean a um, newspaper thing article <laughs> The commission work was for a small building in Hollywood, which it certainly is. Capitol Records is only 13 floors. The construction had to conform to a 150-foot zoning height limit that was in place at the time of construction. So it's kind of short. I mean, the needle makes it look a lot longer than it is. And it's also on a slope, so you can't tell how big it really is. Watson Beckett was responsible for the designs of many L.A. landmarks, such as the Pan Pacific Auditorium, Fire Purifies All, Bullocks of Pasadena, which is now Macy's on Lake Avenue, the Amundsen Theater, the L.A. Music Center, General Petroleum Building on Flower Street in downtown, which is now the Pegasus Apartments, the Cinerama Dome, the Beverly Hilton is his, and the Parker Center for the LAPD, just to name a few. Oh, yeah, that's where Unterweger would hang, hang out. That's right. He also designed the Peterson Automotive Museum building, where the notorious B.I. The, the, where notorious B.I.G. attended a party and was later shot outside of. Well, he didn't design it anymore. <laughs> now it's 1956. Beckett wanted a design to reflect the early sketch designs of another architect and chief designer working for him, Lou Nadorf. Called for a circular building to be built, the first of its kind ever. Nadorf's assignment was to design a building totally from scratch. He was only 24 years old when he did this, and it was the first circular building ever. Anywhere? Yeah. There is much debate on whether the initial design was to reflect a stack of phonograph records or not. Uh-huh. Both designers say no. <laughs> the public says yes. Yeah. I never really saw it though. Like I heard it was and I was like, yeah, kinda. The first time I saw it, I was told that and I didn't really know what like, I mean, I, I know what a rec- shape a record <laughs> is, but I'm like, okay, well, sure. And I always just accepted it. But now I think like I started to question more. I'm like, no, it doesn't look like anything. Maybe really thick. It's more like a stack of flapjacks. Beckett said it wasn't. This is his quote. The circular plan stems from the carefully evaluated economics and sound planning principles. The circular form would require 20% less outer wall and makes possible a smaller service core than would an equal size rectilinear shape square rectangle lines fine good less wall Ah, nah, nah. now I gotcha. Nadorf himself in an interview says the circular design was more functional as he didn't want another square building wedged in between what they thought that they were going to build two buildings on both sides of it that were going to be taller or as tall. So he didn't want people renting offices to lose view or have less windows. Circular design allowed everyone to have a window yeah. and everyone have sort of a view or angle. I've read some places that the building is earthquake proof, which uh, doesn't seem likely. A lot yeah. of people, it made that a lot is, of... Li- that is good. Speaking of pancakes, <laughs> that thing is going to pancake. I mean, that it. thing is going to rock and roll. <laughs> Mostly rock. It actually made a lot of list of the most vulnerable to earthquakes. Oh, great. Architectural Forum pointed out another benefit of the circular design is that the heating and cooling costs would be lowered by the reduction of outside wall surface, as well as the porcelain enameled steel sunshades, which were a Beckett design staple. It was made to keep out sunlight and glare. Obviously, that's what a 
Sunshade does. <laughs> the Capitol Records building was one of the first ever to be totally air conditioned. The building cost $2 million to construct, but again, it would have been a lot more expensive if it was any kind of square or rectangle shape because it was circular, but probably saved a lot of money. You save on corners. <laughs> cut corners is... Once you cut corners, you save money. <laughs> well, we're always talking about circular buildings when they use that phrase. <laughs> we got to cut corners here. Another Capitol Records building? <laughs> but for both these men to flat out deny that it wasn't made to resemble a stack of phonographs is really hard because one, this is a town of flashy businesses for for example, Tale of the Pup or Connie's Restaurant. The ploy is to get your business as much attention as it can get. And second, there's a 90-foot aluminum-inspired jetting out of the top of the building <laughs> resembling a record needle atop the building. So it's kind of hard to be like, no, it's not, that's not, that's not related. <laughs> it's the chopstick and the flapjacks. <laughs> Like ceremonial from chopstick it. in the flapjack. <laughs> the ceremonial chopstick. Bring the ceremonial chopstick. <laughs> if you notice a blinking light coming from it, it's sending out a Morse code message. Oh no, what's it saying? If you haven't taken rigorous Morse code training and extensive espionage workshop like me and Daniel have. <sighs> of course. Then but remind me. The Morse code message is as followed. H-O-L-L-Y-W-O-D-O. No, 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 it can't be. O D. No. No, I thought I killed Hollywood. <laughs> I killed her long ago. <laughs> Spouse out Hollywood. That's fun. I don't know if that's a sound. I think it's telegraphs. It might be different. Maybe it's a stack of telegraphs is what it looks like. <laughs> the opening building was on a night of April 6, 1956. Stars of music and movies were in attendance, and the ceremony was launched by Miss Leela Morse, granddaughter of Samuel Morse, inventor of the Morse code. She punched a telegraph key, which lighted the beacon and began the ceremony. So she's the one who put in the original code of yeah. that? Wow. Of the 13 stories, the first floor is recording studio space. Capital also uses up the second and third floor. Floors four through eight were up for lease at the time of induction for anybody who needed office space. The top floor is the executive suite of Capital. Of course. There's also, get this, I didn't know this, underground. bathroom. They have like two bathrooms, each floor, (laughs) male, female. No, no. It's going to change soon. Take it to West Hollywood. I got to use a little genders room. (laughs) There's an underground recording studios, the first ever built for high fidelity, created by Les Paul, inventor of the Gibson Les Paul guitar and a musician in his own right. He was commissioned to give the studios reverb. Today, musicians use pedals to create reverb, but back then they didn't have the capability, so they had to create studio space that was able to get reverb. He built a series of eight cavernous trapezoidal echo chambers dug 30 feet underneath the building. They were concrete chambers, each have speakers on one side and microphones on the other. If you're wondering how the reverb sounds after this innovation, listen to one of the greatest recorded songs of all time, Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys to hear it. <laughs> Almost called Good Reverbs. <laughs> Great reverbs, good vibrations. The first album recorded in the tower was Frank Sinatra Canuck's Tone Poems of Color. He would record many more there. The building is also referred to as the house that Nat built because Nat King Cole sold so many records here and the profits pretty much paid for the building. Since 1958, every Christmas the spire holds up a Christmas tree shape. We took a picture of that. We did take a picture of that and we put on our Instagram, I think. The tree was the first of its kind designed by the Olsen Lighting and featuring 4,373 bulbs. Capitol Records has invited the families of legends Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole to do the honors and flip the switch. Every year? Every year. It's the biggest tree, I think, in Gallo. That's can't be because the Christmas tree lane are bigger. It's not a real tree. It's also not a real tree. (laughs) It's a ceremonial chopstick covered in lights. Wake up, people. (laughs) They have a new building and it's going great, but music has changed. The musical values that Capitol represented in 56 were pretty much dumped by 1966 because music had changed so much. The British invasion swept over our country and the EMI merger. Capital was pretty much handed the Beatles and they had no idea what to do with them. Capital execs wanted to dump them, but a small Midwest indie label called VJ stepped in to control the distribution of the US of the early Beatles recordings. Capital scrambled to correct this error 
but once they realized that this band was changing the course of music they didn't they were like okay well how do we handle this <laughs> even then like once they got control they were doing so much tinkering with the music and the content of the Beatles work to get their sound to conform to the Capitol sound they were pretty much like messing with Capitol's Beatles albums are good but what the Beatles did themselves later was like oh that's why they're that's why they're the Beatles that's why they changed the course of music because they they were had the control the Beatles and Frank Sinatra are going to come up in my next thing also as important oh that's right that's things. right, that's right. So over th- I'm talking about the Watts Towers <laughs> they built them you didn't know that so over the 60s and 70s the company itself kept going in the late 70s they used to have a swap meet every first Sunday of the month in the parking lot dealers would come into the lot and unload singles 78s LPs posters and memorabilia in the late 70s when around this time it seemed to start on Saturday night it'd be like a hangout thing hmm. all like an all night thing members of the Hollywood punk scene of the late 70s were frequents of the swap meet you'd see the members of the nerves the germs gun club and the cramps were all there but by the end of the decade Capitol Records had enough of this riffraff and locked the vendors out <laughs> good go to amoeba go to something that doesn't exist yet back to the building 1990 a local artist from Compton named Richard Wyatt was commissioned to paint a mural on Capitol Records building to reflect Capitol's early years the project was originally funded by the LA Endowment for the Arts and sponsored by the LA Jazz Society where uh, are you going to paint a mural on that it's like all windows no on the wall I think at the parking lot uh, like the south wall let's go I've seen that. it before I'm just trying to remember how, where I saw it I haven't been there you know, I haven't driven past there because it's vine and what, where am I going to go that donut shop that's really good those other places I like a lot <laughs> the Jazz Society hired Wyatt to design it based on their idea for a mural depicting jazz greats and the Hollywood venues that they called home. Wyatt was also behind other murals in LA, City of Dreams, River of History that you see at Union Station, and Ethnic Diversity at the Civic Center Plaza building in Lompoc. For the Capitol Records building, he was given two specific requests. Rock and roll. <laughs> Can you put David Crosby on this wall? Um, Nat King Cole's widow Maria asked if he would show Nat King Cole wearing his favorite tie. Maria King Cole? Maria King Cole. And, Maria Queen Cole. <laughs> and Joe Smith, who was the president of Capitol at the time, asked if he could please include Ella Fitzgerald, which White was happy to do. He was a big jazz fan. The official name of the mural, by the way, is the Hollywood Jazz 1945-1972. Depicted in this mural are Chet Baker, Gary Mulligan, Charlie Parker, Tito Puente, Miles Davis, Tito Puente, Tito Puente Ella Fitzgerald, Shelly Mann, Dizzy Gillespie, Billy Holiday, Duke Ellington, and of course Nat King Cole. The wall is also inscribed with the names of other jazz greats like John Coltrane if you're up close enough to that. <laughs> 1992, the blinking Morse code message was changed from Hollywood to oh. Capital 50 to celebrate the yeah. 50th anniversary. It'd stay like that for a year. That's dumb. Oh, that's stupid. Tell I, him not to have done that. You know what? I hate that. <laughs> In 2006, the company, I think EMI sold to a company called Argent Ventures. And for a while, they weren't really sure if they were going to do something different with the building, if they're going to sell it and put up like apartments there or whatever. But eventually, I think- A two, giant iPod. A giant. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking in 2008, they were like, no, we're not going to desecrate a Hollywood landmark. We're, we're going to just keep it yeah, the way it is. Well, I continue what we've always done. <laughs> In 2013, the jazz mural had fallen into a certain shabbiness. So they decided oh. to repaint it and they got Richard White to come back and update it. The renovation ensures that the mural is going to be part of the building for a very long time now. Movies where the Capitol Records building has been destroyed. <laughs> Earthquake and once again a tornado in the day after tomorrow. <laughs> Same that one I would assume. I would assume it's only like what like a mile or two away. The ultimate would be if the H took out the Capitol Records building. Awesome. Rock and roll. It's forever in life and hell. It's a symbol of heroin sweeping over the music industry, particularly <laughs> jazz. The sidewalk in front of the building hosts the Walk of Fame star ceremony for Paul McCartney yeah. because the other Beatles are in front of Capitol Records. Can you go into the Capitol Records building? They have tours, I, I believe. Really? You can't yeah. just like, walk willy-nilly, but they're going to yeah. have a tour on May 21st. Right? I would enjoy that a lot. We should do that as a field trip. Field trip! Everyone's invited. Uh, don't come. Recently, they've released no albums from... No pictures of us, please. We're part of the Illuminati. Recently, Capitol has released albums from Sam Smith, The Decemberists, Ryan Adams, Don Henry. Lee Beck, Brian Wilson, the soundtrack to the movie about Brian Wilson, <laughs> Katy Perry, and the Beastie Boys. And that's it for Capitol Records. Well, 
Shut it down. <laughs> Tired of it. Tired of looking at it. Well, I'm uh, continuing with music. For a change of pace, let's talk about a landmark that's in Hollywood. Everybody's favorite place to drink legally outdoors, the Hollywood Bowl. Yay! A great place, iconic, but why does such a thing exist? And why there? <laughs> so, and how much hooch can I bring? <laughs> and can I brew my own moonshine in their <laughs> toilets? Because I got a lot filled up in my toilets, but I want more from everyone. <laughs> Being a younger city, as we've said many times, LA had the freedom to be a little more experimental West Hollywood. God, Greg, what are you feeding your mule? (laughs) It's got to put another letter up. He's watering his steed. (laughs) So the city was younger and more experimental with a lot of things. And with the weather being so mild year round, why not have more outdoor performances? There had been outdoor musical and theatrical performances in Beechwood Canyon since 1916, which is across the 101. We now know as the 101. (laughs) From where the Hollywood Bowl is. It should just be the one. It was the zero. <laughs> Slap two ones around that thing. But it wasn't a zero. It was one of the O's from the Hollywood side. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. It looked like algebra. <laughs> so it's across from where the Hollywood Bowl is, but there wasn't really a set venue for these sorts of things. On August 12th, 1918, a physician and a dentist named oh. Dr. T. Percival Gerson and Dr. H. <laughs> Gill Atwater came up with the idea to create what became officially known as the Theater Arts Alliance on May 25th, 1918. 1919. Now they wanted a location to stage regular outdoor performances, so they sent out their secretary, H. Ellis Reed, on a suicide <laughs> with his son, William, to find a good location that was within reasonable distance for all the people that were living in Hollywood mm-hmm. now. This was the Hollywood heyday before it became urine central. It took a long time to get that smell, but man, do we work hard at it. And we're not getting rid of it. You eat all the asparagus you can, and you go take a pee. So the Reeds went out one Sunday morning and ended up in what was known as Bolton Canyon and found their way to a picnic spot called Daisy Dell. Head on down to Daisy Dell. <laughs> She'll give you all the hooch you want. <laughs> they noticed the way the mountain was shaped there caused it to become a natural amphitheater and found that if one of them stood on the flat area on the bottom and another went all the way up the hill, they could carry on a normal conversation easily. Just naturally from the natural acoustics. Yeah. The Reeds reported back to the Alliance that the search was over and the Alliance proceeded to buy up all the land. They got what is now Pepper Tree Lane from a postman and his wife. The parking lot area was owned by a Mrs. Hershey, and the rest <laughs> was owned by a carpet cleaning company. There's no carpets there. Nah, I mean, what do you need? It was Mrs. Hershey spilling chocolate all over? It's a front for hooch. <laughs> it all is. This whole city is. <laughs> In total, they bought 59 acres of land for $47,500. Eventually, returning culprit C.E. Toberman would donate the land surrounding this area as well to ensure that no buildings would ever be built there to disturb the area. He also made sure the route of traffic wouldn't be heard from there. The area also has a no-fly zone enforced by the FAA, but helicopters often get annoyingly close. They're above the law, literally. (laughs) Which is a slogan when they sell helicopters. Everyone to be above the law? (laughs) Buy a helicopter. (laughs) Time to take a step back and look at the history of this plot of land because it's crazy and Daniel loves a good treasure story. (laughs) Before it was owned by a postman and a cleaning company, it was visited by a shepherd named Diego Moreno. In 1861, three men came from Mexico to San Francisco with $200,000 in gold, silver, and jewelry supposedly to buy guns to bring back for Benito Juarez. For safekeeping, they buried the treasure in San Mateo, but Diego Moreno was watching them, as he always is. So when they 
they left, Moreno came and dug up six loads of the treasure and bolted south to bring it back to his family in Mexico. When he got to LA, he wanted to stop in some tavern, but he didn't want to go in there carrying sacks of <laughs> gold and jewels. So he buried the six loads in six places under an ash tree in the area the Hollywood Bowl now <laughs> occupies. I know that ash tree, God. <laughs> I turned it to ash. Uh-huh. I'm an arsonist. <laughs> so he went into the tavern where he got sick and had to be taken care of by the caretaker of the tavern, Jesus Martinez. Knowing he was dying and to repay Martinez for his kindness, Moreno told him the location of his buried treasure and out of respect for the mystery of buried treasure, he died. <laughs> Martinez then went to collect the treasure with his stepson, Jose Correa, but Martinez couldn't handle the hike to get to it and died of a heart attack on the way. Wow. Correa apparently thought that the treasure was cursed and he didn't want anything to do with it. Then in 1880, a Spaniard was in that area with his dog when his dog dug up a bunch of gold and jewels. And the so dog said, think of the things we could do with this gold. And the dog killed his owner. <laughs> this man went back to Spain with all the new riches, but when his ship was docking, he fell into the water and sank because he sewed all the gold and jewels into his clothing for safekeeping. There's some sort of parable there. I can't even think past the cold. I just want it so bad. Never trust your dog. <laughs> By this time, Jose Correa had become a cop and heard about the Spaniard's story, but knew that there was still more treasure to be found. So he then tried to find the spot, but depending on which story you believe, was either shot dead on the way over there or couldn't find the treasure and was then killed in the line of duty a few huh. years later. So the treasure is yet to be found. Get uh, your shovels. Get, get your everybody, flashlights. Everybody buy a ticket to the Hollywood Bowl <laughs> and bring a jackhammer. In 1939, the city even issued a permit for two engineers to do some digging there, but they didn't find anything. It's believed to be somewhere under the parking lot. That's all we have to go by. <sighs> and I'm not paying for that parking. If I dig up the gold, then I could pay for the parking. Yeah, you have to find the gold if you want to park <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> Even so, after the initial treasure craze there, Bolton Canyon came under the ownership of our old friend, Greek George Caralambo. <gasps> He was George, George, George. <laughs> You did it again. <laughs> He's the guy who let Tiburcio Vasquez hide out in his canyon and who is sometimes credited with starting the gold rush and former camel keeper for the U.S. Army. He was given the land for his camel services rendered and he was apparently a lunatic who I hope to get more into sometime in the future. Yeah. As a teaser, a Slavic immigrant named Marcevich moved into his canyon and filed an illegal mineral claim. So George sued him and won, but the guy wouldn't leave. So George bit his ear off which makes perfect sense i hope that long sense was the title of the biography of great george and thus begins <laughs> the story of marcevich the one-eared man so the cabin that greek george built there was the cabin that vasquez was captured in after okay. george ratted him out by 1900 he had sold the land for 500 dollars. and now back to the story it's 1920 and the theater arts alliance owns the land now the first performance held there was an acoustic test by gertrude ross and anna rusina the two stood on a barn door while one sang and the other played a piano. Sounds like a play. It was very (laughs) avant-garde. And that door... Jim Morrison. <laughs> the president of the alliance was a wealthy woman named Christine Wetherill Stevenson, who was instrumental in getting the property and paid for a large part of it herself, but she wanted the venue to put on exclusively religious programs, which nobody else wanted. No. So in 1920, she cashed out and went across the canyon to build her own theater for religious performances, which eventually became known as the Ford Theater. Wow. Yeah, that I, that was really interesting. And you know that giant cross? I've always wondered, that giant cross that's like next to it on yeah. the hills above the 
101 put there in memory of Stevenson when she died in 1923. Wow, really? Yeah, very interesting. I never thought that was like competition, competition, but also like like the manifestation of a of a feud. Yeah, this is what the feud looks like, <laughs> and it's beautiful. <laughs> but back in 1920, when Stevenson left, the alliance was reorganized as the Community Park and Art Association, headed by F. W. Blanchard and C. E. Toberman again. Mm-hmm. But the person who really got it going was their new secretary, Mrs. Artie Mason Carter. She got most of the planning and fundraising done and is referred to as the mother of the bowl. Supposedly, she sold her diamond ring just to have more money to give to them. When the city was going to repave Highland Avenue during the 1923 season, the noise would have ruined all their shows, so Carter and a few other women sat in rocking chairs on Highland and knitted in the middle of the street until the crews backed down and rescheduled construction for the off-season. My favorite kind of protests are Mm -hmm. in rocking chairs. (laughs) She's the one who started this place's relationship with the LA Philharmonic, who make the Hollywood Bowl their summer home after she brought them in for their first performance there on March 27th, 1921. This was also the first Easter sunrise service. Have you ever heard of this? No, I've seen a photo of something weird before. It's weird. I've never heard of this, but it sounds really cool. As cool as an Easter Sunday (laughs) service can be. So it's been going on yearly ever since. So what they do is they play really early in the morning and they time playing Hallelujah for the second the sun rises and they release 200 white doves and a 650 kids strong choir drops their dark robes and then they're all wearing white robes and standing in the shape of a cross. Thank God they were in robes underneath. And then they dropped those robes. (laughs) The first event to charge admission there had been in 1920 but most of the shows back then were choral music or plays or small bands. The venue was originally named the Daisy Dell Theater and was sometimes referred to as the park. For whatever reason a catchier name stuck better. It's not agreed on who first referred to it as the Hollywood Bowl. Some think it was choral conductor Hugo Kirchhofer but it seems to have first happened in 1920 the bowl referring to the shape of the hillside not the band shell which we'll get into soon everyone thinks it's the band shell including me until a week ago <laughs> so with organization and a new name in place the hollywood bowl opened for its first full season of symphonies under the stars on july 11th 1922 with a performance by the la philharmonic conducted by alfred hertz tickets were 25 cents and you sat on movable wooden benches and you liked it <laughs> but the seating would change over the years the first opera they had was Carmen in 1922, and they used the proceeds from that show to pay for better seating, and in 1923, they added 150 box seats in the front area, but the big change came in 1926 when they got Myron Hunt, the guy who designed the Ambassador Hotel, Ah. to completely redo the seating based on the design of the Rose Bowl, which he also did. It turned the seating layout into this huge balloon shape that was said looked like it would fill with music and ascend, Mm -hmm. and then get chopped down by a helicopter. (laughs) Construction began March 4th, and it was completed by the time the summer season opened. The problem was the new seating configuration diminished the natural acoustics of the area. Right. This is where the band shells come in. The original setup of the stage up to this point was a wooden floor and a canvas over it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So with this new mega seating, they needed to build a band shell to boost the natural acoustics. The first band shell was in 1926 designed by Allied Architects and had pictures of sailing ships on it. It also sucked. <laughs> it created a lot of acoustic problems It was torn down at the end of the season. 1927 brought in the weirdest band shell they had designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, Lloyd Wright. Lloyd wrong. Frank Lloyd wrong. It was pyramid shaped and was made out of leftover wood from a movie version of Robin Hood. It's also considered to have made the bowl the best it's ever been acoustically, but I guess it was just considered too weird and it got torn down after the season also. But Lloyd Wright came back the next year and finally got it right. (laughs) Wait, I'll let everyone stop laughing. 
Okay, they're good now. Yeah. yeah. They stopped throwing up. <laughs> Wipe your tears. Call the hospital. You won't believe what I just heard. <laughs> so this year, he was specifically told to make it circular shaped. And what he came up with looked very similar to what we have today. It had nine streamlined, modern, concentric arches mm-hmm. that could be adjusted and tuned to get better sound and could be taken down and put away for safe storage when not in use. So, of course, they left it up all winter and it got <laughs> ruined and had to be torn down. Right. And for the 1929 season, they got Allied Architects again to take Wright's design from the year before and tweak it just so to make it semicircular instead of elliptical and this time to resist the elements. They made it out of transite, which is cement mixed with asbestos. So if the elements do get in, they'll get sick. <laughs> it weighed 55 tons, but it was mounted on rails so it could be moved behind a hill for any big sets for any plays they were putting on. Like the one they had done in 1926 for a production of Julius Caesar that had a set a city block long that extended all the way up the hill behind the stage and had 3,000 soldiers on stage at once for battle scenes. Decadence. It was really cool. Just like Julius Caesar. It was really cool (laughs) and decadent. The rails, however, were paved over in the 60s and the shell itself wasn't perfect sound-wise, but it had to do until 1970 when they brought in Frank Gehry with an acoustician named Christopher Jaffe to improve the sound quality. To do this, they felt the best way was to add what they called sonotubes, which were huge cardboard pillars around the stage, completely ruined the look of the venue, and they stayed there until 1980. Yeah, that's when good taste came in, right? (laughs) What were we thinking? (laughs) And this is what they did. They got rid of them and they hung huge fiberglass balls over the stage. Oh my god, I hate these. What were you Um, thinking? Pastels? Balls. Balls. What is this? West Hollywood? (laughs) But the big change didn't come until 2003 when a revamping was paid for by Proposition A, which replaced the old stage that had been there since 1929, filled with asbestos, (laughs) with a similar looking version that had better acoustics and added 30% more stage space, which is now enough to hold a full orchestra. They also added big video screens. Forgotten feature of the venue, which I wish was still there, was a giant pool in the area in front of the stage that they put in in 1954. It was 106 feet long. 35 feet wide and 6 feet deep holding 100,000 gallons and if a stagnant pool of water wasn't cool enough, (laughs) in July 1959 they added a fountain that put on rainbow colored water shows during intermissions and would also spout fire. Really? Yeah. Problem was the moisture ruined all the instruments and in 1972 it was drained and they put in another section of seats that are still called the pool boxes. Those seats have their own concierge and food services (laughs) and I would love it if somebody bought me tickets to sit in them. He would probably drown with no water. There. <laughs> From the beginning, the Hollywood Bowl has been mostly successful. They were able to pay off their mortgage in 1923 and celebrated by burning the paper on stage. And in 1924, the land was given to the city of LA and the Hollywood Bowl Association was formed to look over it. In 1925, they started doing radio broadcasts from the bowl, making the LA Philharmonic the first major symphony orchestra in the US to perform an entire concert on the radio. That's pretty cool. Hollywood High School donated the proceeds from their performance of Twelfth Night to the Bowl so they could buy a lighting board and were invited to have their graduation ceremony there in return and have had it there every year since. So we got to go to Hollywood High School. I'm sorry. Have our parents sign us up. In 1928, they recorded Eugene Cousins conducting there to sell as a record, making that the first commercial outdoor recording of a symphony orchestra. In August 1936, they set an attendance record of 26,410 to see Lily Pons perform. The capacity was 20,000. Keep Uh, pushing them, packing them in. (laughs) Put them in the pool. 
This record will never be broken because the seating has since been downgraded to 18,000. Between 19... But we could do it. Because... Come on. <laughs> Between 1938 and 1940, the statue in front was built as designed by George Stanley, the guy who also designed the Oscar statue okay. and the statue of Isaac Newton at Griffith Observatory. It is called Muse of Music, Dance, and Drama. The Muse of Music is on top at 15 feet tall playing a harp. The other two are on its size standing a measly 10 feet tall. <laughs> Nothing. It's made of concrete covered in granite, covered in asbestos. It cost $100,000 and is the biggest Works Progress Administration sculpture in Southern California. The first popular act to play there was Frank Sinatra in 1946, ah. which caused a lot of controversy. He was at Capitol Records stable. Yeah, uh, who, why, why? Because <laughs> he was combining popular music accompanied by the Philharmonic. Oh, okay. No one wanted that. No. The only misstep, aside from having to set the occupancy limit to 5,000 in 1942 for wartime safety, was in 1951 when the season started with five performances of Johann Strauss's Die Fledermaus, which was so unpopular and expensive <laughs> that the bowl had to close down a week <laughs> into the season because they had no money. Luckily, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion stepped in and in 12 days, she secured enough emergency funding to reopen it on July 26th. This is the only time a Hollywood Bowl season has ever been interrupted wow. because of Johann Strauss. <laughs> and it's the last time. <laughs> the Johann Strauss will do anything in this town. <laughs> the first rock and roll show there was August 24th, 1958, with a salute to Dick Clark. But it wasn't until the Beatles performed there on August 23rd, 1964, that solidified its potential as a rock venue. Tickets for the Beatles show went on sale four months in advance and sold out in three and a half hours. Wow. And the line outside for the actual show stretched almost down to Hollywood Boulevard. You couldn't even hear anything during the show because people were screaming so yeah, much so and the crowd legend. swarmed backstage. I actually know someone who was at this show. Really? Yeah, she just remembers screams. <laughs> Could have been anything. <laughs> they told her it was a Beatles show. <laughs> when they came back the next year, they had to be brought into the place in an armored Brinks truck. Because <laughs> they are national treasures. <laughs> International treasures, excuse me. No, they're our nation's treasure. <laughs> they didn't want them, we took them. <laughs> they invaded us so we took them. <laughs> it's not even worth naming who's performed at the Hollywood Bowl because pretty much anyone you can think of except Elvis has been there. Who refused, I bet. I don't know why, but it was something like, oh, I'll never do that. <laughs> Richard Nixon told me I can't do that. The National Guard even occupied the stage when they used the Hollywood Bowl as their home base during the Rodney King riots. Oh. In 1991, they started the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra led by John Mauchery, who had had earlier, in, which had had earlier incarnations. He didn't have any er, earlier <laughs> incarnations. You don't know what life's like. <laughs> you don't know what it's like, man. Why don't you take a walk down Hollywood Boulevard. And now the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra is a permanent thing made up of 80 people, many of whom are studio musicians in town. If you want to audition for the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra or even the Philharmonic, there are links to do so on the website for the Hollywood Bowl. The Hollywood Bowl is the largest natural amphitheater in the U.S. and has inspired many other outdoor venues across the country, but for its significance to the city of L.A., it brought classical music to the people. On top of that, it's a lot of fun to yeah, go there. It is. I've we went to the Simpsons thing. It, it was, was a, so much fun. Except for when they played the Bartman. Oh, oh, that happened, didn't it? I thought mm -hmm. that I made that up no. as a joke. And you got up on stage and danced. <laughs> I knew it. Did I not know it? <laughs> so the Hollywood Bowl is at 2301 Highland Avenue, right off the 101, and close enough to the Hollywood and Highland Metro stop. You could you could walk it. Yeah. During shows, there are also shuttle lots throughout the city, which you can park your car at for free and take the shuttle over. If you have a Metro Tap card, show that to them. You get to ride the bus for free. Insider tip. Awesome. Although now, they'll probably stop that because <laughs> everyone's going to do it. This upcoming, because everyone listens to this show. <laughs> this upcoming season is its 95th and they renovated all the seats last year so they're slightly less uncomfortable. Another tip, bring a portable cushion to sit on. Smart guy. The shows are during the summer. If you look on their website, you'll 
probably be interested in something that they're doing. Philharmonic shows are usually Tuesdays and Thursdays. A fun thing to do before a show is the Hollywood Bowl Museum, which is free, has a lot of artifacts and recordings from performances past. The hours are weird, so just look on their website. I'm not even going to try. Since 2000, they've also had the Hollywood Bowl Hall of Fame, which maybe we can get in that one. (laughs) Bring your own food and drinks whenever you go. Eat them in your seats. It's fun. It's been legal since 1952 (laughs) at the behest of Dorothy Chandler again. Some of the things they do there are called least events. You technically can't bring alcohol in, but there are ways. You can see see the Hollywood sign from the seats further to the left. Wild animals sometimes wander on stage. A fox sat behind a piano. Raccoons crawled around in the band shell. Skunks went through the crowd. A bear once played a cello solo. (laughs) He wasn't very good, but they they gave him his time. Everyone gets their 15 (laughs) minutes. If you're too cheap to go to a show, Greg, Poor and cheaper different. <laughs> I'm not willingly cheap. <laughs> There's usually rehearsals on the day of the show between 9.30 and 12.30, and you can go watch them for free. But call this number to find out when they're happening. 323-850-2000. What's that number again? 323-850-2000. That's the Hollywood Bowl. Thank you. I'm going to close my portion of this talking stuff out. The Santa Monica Pier, Cross Streets, Colorado Avenue, and the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I feel like you've said that before. So Santa Monica is disgusting. It's full of gross sewage and broken poop pipes. What's the city to do? Live in filth? Yes. Yes, that's what we like. Yes, and that's what they've done ever since. End of episode. You'll remember down the street, Abikini was creating a grand vision of Venice along the California coast with canals and amusements. Pier Avenue was opened in 1898. In 1905, Kinney built his pier, but it struggled to get built due to storms. But he eventually mm-hmm. had the amusement Fires. pier. Flyers. Fire pier fires all as well. He eventually got his amusement pier built. That's when the city of Santa Monica got the idea, the vision of building a municipal pier. M- municipal pier. I'm going to not say that well. This whole time, I hope you're okay with that. Great. Because uh, the city council actually weren't sure what to do with any of that sewage that the city was generating. <laughs> so they decided to do what everyone else was doing. Flush it out to the sea. Pollute the ocean. Smooth, smooth. It's sort of like when Superman, any like bomb he'll just throw into the sun. He's like, eh, whatever. Yeah, the sun can take it. And so can the ocean. <laughs> Unlimited resources of water. They like poop in the ocean. There were initially 11 plans on how to deal with the sewage. An architect and consulting engineer, Edwin H. Warner, was the lucky fellow whose plans got selected. So in 1908, they began under construction on what was going to be called a municipal pier. It was to be made of concrete, the first concrete pier on the West Coast. Like a bad idea. Which could cover the magnetic electrolytic sewage system reaching 1,600 feet out. Past the breakers to flush the sewage out. And directly into Orange County. (laughs) (laughs) Into the mayor's office of Orange County. (laughs) Yeah, we got a present from you upstream. Knock, knock. (laughs) Why, who's there? I'm the mayor of Orange County. A what? A poop? What's those stinking lines coming down the ocean? My precious ocean. (laughs) The pier would start at the foot of Colorado Avenue and along with being 1,600 feet long would also be 30 feet wide and 21 feet above main tide level. The estimated cost was $100,000 excluding the septic tank, which is a gross sentence. There are concrete rooms under the street at the base of the shore, which is kind of weird to think about. Where That's where the magnetic electrolytic tanks are and the pipes run along the pier underneath or did anyways. During one of the visits of the city officials to the sewage tanks while the pier was being built, a man in charge of the tanks took a glass, dipped it in the flood, and handed it to a visitor for the purpose of demonstrating that there was no offensive odor. He then put the glass down and walked away as he was called to another room, and an older man who was also part of this tour, not paying attention, (laughs) drank the cup. (laughs) 
uh, his comment i've tasted worse water <laughs> that was proof that the system was all right <laughs> tasted worse water. it took six he was from croatia <laughs> he was terribly ill to begin with his body couldn't take any more sickness so he was fine it took 16 months to build a pier and opening day was on september 9th 1909 the 59th anniversary of the day when california was admitted into the union there were thousand in attendance to walk out on the pier the ceremony was attended by different naval cruisers and torpedo boats dedicating the municipal pier was mayor dudley and captain charles graves the u.s cruiser ship the st louis commander of the squadron of warships the cruiser ship albany was also there visitors could go swimming fishing and boating along the pier there were concerts all day you could board the warships and see what they were like around the entire city opening day for the pier was like considered a holiday the closing ceremony of pier day was the surrender of rex neptune the mighty king of the sea uh, he climbed out onto the deck declaring to a crowd that he was going to destroy the brand new pier oh, no. when all of a sudden Queen Sentimonica stopped by making Bless her. the king aware that this was no mere wooden pier it was concrete <laughs> Neptune, and it's filled with asbestos <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna drown in asbestos Neptune could not destroy it with the overwhelming amount of water that he controlled so Neptune defeated by man and the queen herself dove off the pier in a blaze of flames which wow. funny enough is the same element that burned the other piers <laughs> and he dove right onto the Venice pier <laughs> Now open wide. Here comes the septic pipe. I've been doing things wrong as the king of the ocean. That was a closing ceremony. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd like to see that. And after that point, people continued to flock to the municipal pier, but they had no amenities or amusements. It was just, you just walked. It was a nice walk out into the ocean where you didn't drown. People mostly began to congregate for fishing. It was one of the best fishing spots in the city. And people began telling tall tales of 500 pounders that fishermen couldn't get a hold of. This turned out actually to be true as there was giant black sea bass. They were prominent in that area. There's pictures of them that are fat. Another attraction on the municipal pier was the naval ships. Sometimes these large naval ships would come and dock at Santa Monica and you can like tour them. Which you sounds can like catch it. those. You can catch those and you can take it home to Ma. It was fun, but like it's all we could basically. It was just like a pier. All of this changed with the introduction of Charles I.D. Loof to the story, who was an East Coaster with an incredible mustache and a knack for seaside amusements. He was responsible for building the first carousel hand-carved, mind you, to Coney Island in 1876. Huh. He was living on the West Coast, specifically Long Beach, and saw an opportunity with the municipal pier of Santa Monica. It was drawing an impressive enough crowd as is. He thought if he added amusements, he could surely make a buck. It wasn't a particularly innovative idea since Venice already had a few amusement piers, <laughs> the more recent one being the Million Dollar Pier, but by 1912 it had already been destroyed. Uh, love suspicious mm, weird Loff also was developing the waterfront Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach and he was putting a carousel in Venice Pier which was still active the year was 1916 and Charles Loof wanted to turn the municipal pier, municipal pier to something special <laughs> there it is there it is it's gonna happen <laughs> a lot his plan was to build a second pier that would be pure amusements and the muni- municipal pier would extend from that so he bought 247 feet of the ocean front for $250 per foot which is about $61,000 he then requested permission to link the two piers together which is if you walk on the Santa Monica Pier there's the fatter base at the beginning which is all the amusements and then the reg- the old yeah. pier just shoots out of that and that's the extension huh. yeah, it's two separate piers it's not concrete anymore no not it? it's wood now we'll get to that okay yeah Can uh, concrete burn <laughs> It did there. The asbestos could burn it. Construction was happening really fast. He was just tearing through, just trying to get everything up. Aiding in all this construction was his family. His son, Arthur, was to oversee the construction, and his other son, William, was in charge of electrical wiring. The amusement pier was going to have several rides, including a roller coaster, the Blue Streak, as it was called, another ride called the Whip, which sounds awful, another ride called the Aeroscope, which looks like the Eiffel Tower, but it swings around and makes people puke, a 44-horse carousel, which Loof himself was designing and carving. No two horse were alike on that. Is that the one that's still there? No. Oh, that one was dismantled. The original one was dismantled. There's a reproduction of the second carousel that replaced that one, though. Okay. But they, they make a big deal of, about that one as if it's the original yeah, one. The one from the Sting. 
it's funny i've never seen the sting but like every article like like the sting you know the movie the sting like uh it's the uh sequel to Butch cassidy um and there was a two-story benzatine morse style hippodrome hippodrome is greek for horse race course the hippodrome and the carousel were open for a weekend in the early summer of 1916 as a preview of what's to come in the summer the amusement pier which at the time was called the Louvre pleasure pier itself opened officially on august 4th 1916 and it was an instant hit with the public the pier also had bowling and billiards live music a picnic area and a fun house called what is it which is terrifying to me <laughs> where's the exit <laughs> the carousel seemed to be the crowning jewel it was reported that a woman came all the way from england to see it and then she joined oh, the beatles really? <laughs> <laughs> she went straight to Capitol records and that woman ringo star she was a goofy woman the pier continued to see big crowds over the years but when Luf passed away in 1918 the family suddenly slowed down the upkeep of it his son arthur took over management of the pier and the next year 1919 catastrophe struck when two large naval ships that were docked there the texas and the prairie they were anchored there and a section of the concrete pier couldn't hold them and split off <laughs> take note neptune <laughs> concrete doesn't last very long and this required the entire pier to be shut down so the entire structure had to be reassessed rust had worn away at the concrete piles and the deck that was holding a crowd of people dropped two feet but luckily no one was hurt this is when the thing tore away they shouldn't have put pier. that man-eating shark pool under the pier <laughs> it was a joke at the time wasn't it? <laughs> concrete what concrete need we say it again Repairs on the concrete. Concrete! Municipal <laughs> Pier was, uh, would take two years to complete. While this was going on, and into the mid-20s, the Loose Pleasure Pier began to dwindle. They sold the amusement operation in 1923 to the Santa Monica Amusement Company, which very quickly installed a new roller coaster called the Whirlwind Dipper. Two words I don't like combined. They also built the 15,000 square foot La Monica Ballroom, which was the largest ballroom in the country with a maximum capacity of 10,000 dancers. It's not the ball- that many dancers. 10,000 dancers? There's not, no, there's not that many. Oh, yeah. That is that, a lot. Not, there's not back that then many there was. The Everyone knew how to dance back then babies <laughs> they died out it's the ballroom they use in one of my favorite movies they shoot horses the don't they oh. which coincidentally was probably based on that actual ballroom <laughs> we'll get to that the ballroom debuted in july of 1924 with 15,000 dancers and caused the first traffic jam in santa monica history oh. it's still going on right now <laughs> there's an elizabethan skeleton <laughs> stuck <laughs> i didn't believe this when i read this but the facts confirmed it 1925 there was a norwegian sailor made himself known on the pier creating his own fleet of recreational fishing boats his name was olaf c Olsen. He was a sailor man with a wood pipe sticking out of his mouth. He was a hero at the pier. They called him Santa Monica Olsen, and he was known for ensuring commercial net fishing was kept away, and during the Depression, he was sending needy families some of his catch. Another visitor to this pier was a cartoonist named E.C. Seeger, who at the time was creating one of my favorite comic strips, Thimble Theater, and decided to use Olsen as a basis for the character Popeye the Sailor. That is ridiculous. He was also... Popeye's actually based on two people. One of them is Olaf Olsen. The other person was a guy Seeger knew in his hometown who was a physicus fighter named Frank Rocky Fiegel. And these two combined together were Popeye. Interesting. Very interesting. This man likes spinach? Where'd that come from? Huh? Who got that? No, but the Depression era. <laughs> Everyone liked spinach. You had to. 1928, Santa Monica stopped sending its sewage out to sea and began sending waste to the Hyperion plant in El Segundo. Yeah. Attendance at the pier began to wane as once again the Great Depression hit. <laughs> During the Depression, no one was really having fun anywhere sending carousels out to be bullets. Many of the rides were shut down because no one was there to operate them. The La Monica Ballroom became a convention center, a lifeguard headquarters, and a city jail for a brief period. This was also the period that those miserable dance marathons were happening at the La Monica mm-hmm. that They Shoot Horses, Don't They? was based on. If you're unfamiliar, these couples would win money if they could outdance other couples, and this went on for weeks. Miserable with a capital M. I don't understand dancing. I don't understand petty depression era <laughs> money making. Well, that I get. <laughs> Spinach, baby. 
<laughs> so around this time, they began to use the pier as a yacht harbor, but as a bond issued, allowed the community to build a rock wall breakwater so they could start docking yachts there. And they had eventually started regatta, uh-huh. regatta races. In 1940, the Works Progress Administration, WPA, built a bridge over PCH to the pier using federal funding. The business people of the pier wanted to promote the yacht harbor and the regatta that had been starting. And uh, to do this, they built an arch sign at the base of the pier on Colorado Avenue. It's still there to this day. Mm-hmm. It reads Santa Monica Yacht Harbor Sport fishing, boating, cafes. Looking at it now, you can't see how it was ever a yacht harbor, but it was at some point a yacht harbor. They all parked at Bubba Gump. (laughs) They were Bubba Gump. (laughs) Like always, after the Depression comes World War II, and the LaMonica was being used to... That's the war. That's the big one. Oh, the war we were talking... Oh my god, Nazis, I keep forgetting. The LaMonica at this time was being used to shelter troops who were protecting the coast. All the large harbor ports were seized, which made all the fishermen who depended on their catches scramble around to try to find the harbor that was safe, and the closest one was the Santa Monica Pier and Yacht harbor. All the fish deliveries in our direct area were brought to the Santa Monica Pier and by 1942 it had become overrun with fishermen and the pier was physically taking a hit from it. The city had to begin to regulate the number of fishermen making deliveries there, which made the fishermen angry of course, so they began in protest to dump the catches of dead fish into the harbor to to pollute the water. Eventually the federal government had to step in and help fortify the pier so they could handle the excess of angry fishermen. Fishermen, I don't get them. Don't make the Popeye man angry. I know how he reacts to that. (laughs) He's got a few rage issues. (laughs) During this era. The amusement pier was then once again sold to a banker from Venice named Walter Newcomb, who quickly named it the Newcomb Pier. While indeed during the war, the amusement annex of the pier was shut down, he was anticipating a post-war amusement boom and wanted to have it ready. He replaced the Louf carousel in the late 40s to bring in a new one. This is the replica is of the one that Newcomb brings in. In 1948, country swimming music star Spade Cooley televised a weekly show from the Monica. Water sports were also starting to become popular and the pier and the yacht harbor had a paddleboard club, which kept the youth entertained until all the Nazis were hung for their war crimes. <laughs> Surfing was also becoming popular in the early 50s. So Newcomb family ran the amusement pier for 26 years from the early 40s to the early 70s. Walter passed away in 1954 and his wife Enid succeeded him. Helping her are some family friends, the Gordons, Morris and his two sons, Eugene and George. Now the Gordons purchased the pier's arcade and began to operate it with games and amusements. Mm-hmm. For some time, it was the amusements pier that had to compete with each other between Pacific Ocean Park and Venice and Newcomb Pier and some of the other ones farther south like the Redondo Beach and stuff. But all of them had to contend with the 1955 opening of Disneyland mm-hmm. from Walter Disneyland. <laughs> it almost instantly made all the piers novelties. Like like in two days. Yeah. It was like, oh, the Haunted Mansion. No, it wasn't opening, but whatever. <laughs> well, they have Star Tours. <laughs> I don't want to go play in a Penny Arcade. I got a movie idea based on that ride Star Tours. <laughs> you know that draw whose first day it is he's not in it <laughs> just to confuse everybody so the pier carried on through the 50s and 60s an artist community began to grow out of the old hippodrome made up of fishermen and beatnik artists and folk celebrities Joan Baez was one of them Jane Fonda star of They Shoe Horses Don't They was one of them Weird. Charles Bukowski was another one of course he was uh, some people even lived in the hippodrome if you call hippie living living mm-hmm. uh, so the, the hippodrome <laughs> it was torn down in 1962 the Newcomb lease was set to expire in 1974 and it wasn't looking like there was a reason to renew it the municipal pier and the breakwater as well were in perpetual need for repairs which the owners couldn't afford a few fires in the hippodrome threatened to shut it down but it remained open and it had no artists living in it now which is good <laughs> the carousel was beat up but still ran in 19- did they shoot the horses <laughs> that's what made them run in 1972 there was a proposed plan to build a man-made resort island and have the pier be the bridge to that island when the community heard about this they revolted insisting on saving the municipal pier and the newcomb pier because they were all city landmarks the community backlash was so strong that the city manager and the council members who supported it dropped the plan altogether and two years later the voters passed proper Position one, which secure the preservation of the pier. Great, the community saved the pier from mankind. What else do we have to worry about? 
Ten years pass, and in Jan- Neptune's back. Neptune's back. January 1983, two winter storms came and destroyed one third of the pier. Neptune. The lower deck was completely gone. He got his revenge. <laughs> I wait till the grandkids are nice and grown, <laughs> and they'll make a ride of me. <laughs> I'll see that they build a ride of me, and it's the slowest one yet. <laughs> the lower deck was completely destroyed. And a few months later, they began to repair it when another, uh, even greater storm rolled Poseidon. in. This is a funny story from the second storm. There was a crane at the pier that was being used to repair the pier and the waves toppled it and the crane was caught between a wave and a hard place and was <laughs> smashing the pier the one that it was hired to fix just smashing the hell out of concrete I've got a crane story in the next one actually oh really yeah. I hope it's the same crane <laughs> yeah, he's the been through a lot crane. it was Fraser Crane <laughs> so now that people were getting really serious about pier restoration and preservation rebuilding would start fresh and they would move forward with a concrete piling concrete fishing deck and a nice wooden deck to give that classic east coast pier look Concrete was gone. There's no more reason to have the sewage washed out, so they didn't need concrete to secure that. We don't make sewage anymore. We eat it. <laughs> it's a self-sustaining system. They <laughs> held a Save the Pier Week, which had a series of seaside concerts called the Twilight Dancers, which still go on. I think they're on the 28th yeah. now. They would also begin to rebuild the amusement pier. This plan took hold in 1987, and it carries our story to 1990. The municipal pier reopened in 1990, but it would take another six years until the amusement pier would reopen as Pacific Park, not Pacific Ocean Park. Different. Not P.O.P. P.P. New roller coasters and games opened Speaking up. Speaking of sewage. <laughs> The pee-pee. What's so I don't see what the problem is. A new roller coasters <laughs> opened up. The Hippodrome is still intact, although that and the loaf carousel went under major construction. The loaf carousel was dismantled. I think pieces of it are in different places, but it doesn't run as a carousel now. There is an amazing solar-powered Ferris wheel there at the pier. Previous Ferris wheel sold on eBay, and the money went from that went towards buying a new one. The minimum bid was $50,000, with the 50% of the winning bid being donated to the Special Olympics of Southern California. The 122,000-pound Ferris wheel was bought by the Humphreys Real Estate Investment of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. There are bumper cars. There's a drop tower. There's acrobatic stuff. Movies that were filmed there. The Sting. The Sting. <laughs> they uh, shoot horses, don't they? That's uh, it. Four is Gump. Night Tide, which is a good horror movie with Dennis Hopper. Night of the Roxbury. Iron Man. The Hottie and the Naughty. Two movies that I can easily recognize it from. Ruthless People with Danny DeVito. Very funny. The end that happens there. So does Falling Down with Michael Douglas. 2012 <laughs> film Earthquake, which the original one destroyed old Hollywood and the remake destroyed whatever else was left. Slightly less old Hollywood. Yeah. It is the oldest pleasure appear on the west coast now and continues to be the end of route 66 yeah here's my tips in the carousel room there's like a soda fountain they have good, oh yeah sodas and whatnot yeah and also the hot dog on a stick, stick is the original right, right there. there muscle beach is right there mm-hmm. the original muscle beach yeah parking suggestions i don't have any they're oh gonna well build they're a, putting that thing yeah the, they're putting the, thing, the train is gonna take which is funny there. because in a reading about when charles loff opened it up as an amusement pier that's what carried people to the amusement pier in the first place it's like the train leads right to the door <laughs> we've come full circle <laughs> And watch out because Neptune's still out there. (laughs) Fire doesn't kill a man of the ocean. So now for the final stop on our obvious landmark tour, Watts Towers. Oh, that's right. Watts a tower you. I'll tell you what's the story of the Watts Towers, yes. LA's strangest landmark, or the Garbage Towers, as Greg so cavalierly and proudly calls them. It was a description. You didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> the story of them is really about the guy who made them. Yeah. That man was Sabato Rodia, who in America went by Sam, but due to a misprint in an LA Times article in 1937, will forever be known as Simon. Oh, this is some sort of Charlie Brown story. <laughs> you just can't come out on top. It kind of is. It's like a yeah. Charlie Brown didn't have the dexterity for this. He was born. 
February 12, 1879 in Rubotoli, Italy, and left the country for America at age 15 with his big brother, where they first settled in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and worked in coal fields, quarries, and oh, railroad camps. All three of those suck. Until his brother died in oh, 1902. Oh. So he moved to Seattle and married a woman named Lucy Uchi. They had four kids. One died as a baby, but Rodia was an alcoholic and didn't seem ready to settle down. So in 1912, they divorced and he roamed around like a boxcar hobo for the rest of the decade before he settled down here, as, here. as a cement maker in Long Beach in 1918 with a 19-year-old from Mexico named Benita. But she eventually left and Rodia finally joined up with a new woman named Carmen and considered moving to the plot of land where the Beverly Hilton now is. Is this on the road? Are you reading that? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. What are, what are the research have been Oh, my God. <laughs> I wonder why it was all just one sentence. <laughs> this could have been where the Beverly Hilton was, okay. but he settled instead on Beverly Hills of the little further south, triangular-shaped lot at 1765 East 107th Street in Watts in 1921. What? He worked by day in various jobs like security guard, telephone line repairman, but by night at his new home. In 1921, he set to work on a little project in his backyard. He started gathering found materials and scraps from around the neighborhood, and he started building something. He used simple tools like pliers to take things like bed frames, steel rods, whatever else was around, and he'd wrap it in wire mesh and coat it in cement, no asbestos. (laughs) A Pacific Electric red car ran right along his house, so he'd even use the tracks to flatten out metal. Oh, wow. Then the outsides of these things he would adorn with whatever looked good. He'd take tiles from the Malibu Pottery Company he worked at and Mm -hmm. put smashed up pieces of them all over it. He'd put impressions of leaves and fruit in the wet cement. His initials are several places. There's 25,000 seashells in it. Wow. He bought them from some lady called Sally. <laughs> Where did he buy them? Uh, somewhere near the pier. <laughs> uh, he bought them from Pierre by the pier. Pierre, Pierre by the pier. Local kids, including a young Charles Mingus. They would bring empty 7-Up in Canada dry bottles they found to him, so there's tons of those in there wow. to help him out. Broken dishes, kitchen utensils, it's all in there. There's over 70,000 items stuck <laughs> into that cement. He never stopped building it until 1955, and That's it consists of... Years. Yeah, because it, it, it wasn't, he was just doing it. Like, yeah, I'm just it, doing this. Yeah, compulsively. And it consists of 17 structures, the most prominent of which being the two tallest spires, which are 99.5 feet tall, that he used a window washer's harness to get up to to build. It's important to remember that Rodia built this whole thing with his own hands all alone, and he called it Nuestro Pueblo. At the time, Watts was a pretty diverse area with white, black, and Latino mm-hmm. people all living together, but Rodia was the only Italian around, and he seems to have missed Italy because the entire structure is in the outline of a boat with wave designs on it and it's pointed in the direction of Italy. In Nola, a town near where Rodia was from, they even have a Festa de Gili every year where they make these huge towers that are marched around that look a lot like the ones wow. in Watts. But life wasn't all great for Rodia and Watts. It wasn't before that Not either. for many people. Yeah. He was a respectable member of the community. He'd regularly go to meetings of the Italian American Society downtown, known dislikers of us. He'd let his neighbors have weddings and baptism inside his weird structure. Oh, but cool. a lot of people thought he was crazy for building it. Even Carmen
woman who left him in 1927. She mm. no more of this. Yeah. Kids would regularly smash up the glass and the tiles. There were accusations during World War II that he was using the towers to send information to the Japanese, and then after World War II, there were accusations he was using them to send information to the communists. <laughs> there's also a rumor there's treasure hidden somewhere in there. Wow, really? So let's get into it. But at a certain point, he just had enough of all the vandalism and the accusations. So in 1955, he left his property and the towers to his neighbor Luis Soseda, and he moved to Martinez, California, to live with his sister. And he died 10 years later, July 17, 1965, a month before the Watts riots began. He couldn't even watch oh my that. God. Back in 1955, shortly after he left, some kids threw firecrackers on the roof of the house, and it burned down. Fireproof as all, but the house had. But the towers were safe. But six months later, the guy he left it to sold it to a man named Joseph Montoya for a thousand dollars, who intended to put a Mexican fast food place there with the towers as like the background. That's when the city got involved. With a potential restaurant coming onto the property, the city decided that the towers were a safety hazard and had to be demolished. The head of building and safety even said, personally, I think this is the biggest pile of junk outside a junkyard I have ever seen. Always wise. It's poetic. (laughs) When word of this spread in 1959, a couple movie makers named Nicholas King and William Cartwright, who were fans of the towers after seeing a short documentary made of them in 1952, they bought the land from Montoya for $3,000 and negotiated with the city that if the towers could survive a stress test, they would let them stand. The city agreed and the test was on. They stressed it out. Who's going to pay all these bills? (laughs) (laughs) King and Cartwright formed the Committee for Simon Rodia towers in Watts and they got an aerospace engineer named N.J. Goldstone to devise the test. On October 10th, 1959, a thousand people showed up to watch as a stress load of 10,000 pounds was put on it by being pulled by a crane. The very same crane. (laughs) The towers didn't move an inch. The crane broke. What? So the city lost and the towers were allowed to stand and the next year they were open to the public for 50 cents admission. I love when machines play arm wrestling. (laughs) On October 24th, 1975, the towers were given to the city of LA who started the Watts Towers Art Center to give tours. On April 13th, 1977, it became a National Historic Landmark. In 1978, it was given to California and became California's smallest state park. What's a state park? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's small though. (laughs) If you haven't heard in 1985, it got a huge repair job done and was it got a new nose and was named a U.S. National Historic Landmark. It doesn't want us to tell you about the nose. It has the longest slender reinforced concrete column in the world. It's the largest artwork created by just one person. It's one of only nine pieces of folk art on the National Register of Historic Places, and it's considered the country's most famous folk art sculpture. But it's not all accolades and titles for the towers. Let's not forget the repair jobs, those noses. They are sturdy, but made up of weird things so deterioration is a serious issue. Cracks show up all over them with wind being the biggest problem. A strong Santa Ana wind can do as much damage to them as an earthquake would. There's no threat of them falling over but the risk is that huge chunks of them are going to start falling off. Since it's made of so many different things it's almost like it's alive because cracks will expand and contrast depending on the weather like it'll heal itself. They also they bend towards the sun as it moves through the sky every day like a plant. Like Like I think the most it moves is a full inch. This flex Ability is what helped them survive the 1994 earthquake. They've done a lot of repairs over the years, but most of them have been short term. Part of the problem is that the towers don't get much funding because no one really goes to visit them. Only around 45,000 people a year. Most of those people being from other countries because most locals are too scared to go down there, which is a shame. It's been referred to as an international icon, but a local blind 
spot. Things hit a low in 2011 when budget cuts forced them to let go of three of the tower's maintenance workers. This forced them to let the Michael Govan run LACMA to intervene. They paired up with them and LACMA was able to secure $500,000 to help preserve the towers. This includes not only a conservation scientist from LACMA and four other full-time people checking in on the towers every day using monitoring systems, but also to try to encourage more people to go down there and see them. It sounds like a good thing, but some of the people who have been running the Watts Towers for a while are skeptical of what LACMA's ultimate motives are here, because after the riots, the towers took on a special significance for the people of Watts, and it's, it's been a fixture there for years. People riding on the red car every day, they saw it being built. Like, every, yeah. they go by already, they saw like, oh, what is this weirdo doing yeah. now? It's sending messages to what <laughs> country? And since they managed to survive the riots intact, they became a symbol of hope and resilience and local pride. That's something locals want to keep as their own and not have it co-opted by LACMA for a much yeah. richer part of town. Yeah. The towers and the attached Watts Towers Art Center, which provides a lot of classes for the community, became the focal point of rebuilding after the riots. There's even a timeline on the ground around it that shows the history of Watts. But just like nobody really cared about them because they were just a weird thing this guy made in his backyard, they weren't seen as art until the city threatened to tear them down. Yeah. Rodia never considered himself an artist. He was just a guy who wanted to do something, but now he's considered to be California's Gaudi or however Gaudi. Yeah. He's also on the Sgt. Pepper cover. He next, is? Yeah, he's next to Bob Dylan. Other than the towers, he didn't really do any other art. Like, he helped build UC Berkeley, which is eh, kind of art. He decorated someone's fireplace in Los Files and made a tower in someone's yard in Malibu, and he put some stuff around his sister's garden up north. He left some stuff in his backyard in Long Beach, but that stuff got torn down in 1961. He didn't really care about the towers after he left them. It's it seems like, more like a compulsive act. Well, here's the thing. He said it was a good way to help him stop drinking. Oh. Like, he kept himself, like, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to do this instead. And he said that he had in mind to do something big, and I did it. Just wanted Great. to do it. That's pretty cool. This year is the 95th anniversary of the towers being started. In the last weekend of September, they have the Simon Rodia Watts Towers Jazz Festival, which is the oldest jazz festival in LA, and they also have the Day of the Drum Festival. Towers are open for tours Thursday through Saturday, 1030 to 3, and Sunday, 1230 to 3, but not during rainy days. Go see them. It's not scary. I went there. Great. They fear me. <laughs> I fought the tower I won. <laughs> well, that's our little tour for you little tourists of LA. Welcome to the city. Get a burrito. Have an enchilada or oh, two. Oh, yeah. That sounds... Th- oh, God. I'm so hungry right now. It's fun because like there's a lot of little things. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that the municipal pier was like the first yeah. concrete pier. I didn't know that the Hollywood sign was... I was so glad to learn about the Ford Theater. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about the Watts Towers. I didn't know they were that old. Yeah, neither did I. I didn't in 1921. And alive. I didn't know that it was like an organic thing. I learned a lot of little things that I'm I'm glad I learned. Yeah. Well, that's what we're here for. (laughs) We're each other and no one else. Yeah, that's yeah. where you're for to teach each other things. <laughs> Here's something to teach you. Go on iTunes. Yes. Leave us a review if you enjoy listening to us. I know it's, uh, hey, I listen to podcasts too. I don't always leave reviews. Just do it. <laughs> do, you don't even have to leave a review. Just a star rating. Five star rating. That's all it takes. That's all we're asking if, for. If it, you think we're worthy of a five star rating, that is. You do. <laughs> It helps us a lot. It helps more people find us. Yeah. It helps us to keep going. Yeah. Other than that, we're on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Post things. We're like on us Instagram. On Facebook. underscore meekly. Pictures pretty much every day. Yeah. Twitter, which is not as active as we should, but we're no. we're working on it. At Ally Meekly, we have a home base, which is a Tumblr blog, which corresponds with our episodes. Lots uh, of goodies. AllyMeekly.tumblr.com. Send us an email, question, concern, death threat, love letter. Suggestions. Yeah. Uh, ambivalent note 
la.meekly at gmail.com. We both hope you have enjoyed this and you have a nice May. Yeah. May the 4th be with you. May Day, you know, whatever. whatever. Mother's Day, whatever. <laughs> My mother is the force. But that has been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Fine, good, since 2013. Good. <laughs> we did it. We did it. We did it.